Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I are back, and once again, bring almost two and a half hours of comic book hypno-hustle for your enjoyment. Discuss today... The current controversy over an Image Comics cover, a comparison and contrast of a wide range of erotic comics, money in comics and the lack thereof, an update on the seeming car crash that is Marvel Legacy, and a discussion of the first ten issues of, God help us, Alpha Flight by John Byrne. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Leave us comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Laster! Graham McMillan, hello. Hello, Jeff. Have you seen Guys and Dolls? No, I never have. Really? Yeah. Oh, well then, never mind. I had a whole thing that I was going to go launch into. But if you've never seen Guys and Dolls, never mind. Well, that's fine. It's, I... it's fine. It's fine, Jeff. <laughs> Just never see one of the best musicals ever made. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with the cast album, the Broadway cast album I listen to a lot. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, you've never seen the show? No, but I've never seen the show. That, that's so very strange. How are you so familiar with the cast album if you've never seen the show? Well, Like, was uh, it one of your parents' records or something growing up? No, actually, one of, one of, one of my first girlfriends in college was a huge fan of Guys and Dolls. But was very split because she was very conflicted about the movie because she didn't think Marlon Brando could sing. And, of course, this was – Which, to be fair, he can't. He can't. So so she was like, but you got to hear the cast album because it's great. So the cast – the original cast album with uh, Robert Alda, I believe, um, I listened to that just a ton because, you know, it's pretty listenable and very clever. Uh, but um, – but yeah, and and it was always on my to do list to see the actual movie, but never got around to it. Oh man! One day you really should. Okay. Anyway, the reason I was saying this is there's uh, the intro to "If I Were a Bell" is is Sarah telling Sky repeatedly like, "Ask me how do I feel," and that's uh, the first line in the song, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And part of me is really tempted to be like, "Jeff, ask me what I've just been doing a lot," because guess where guess where I've just been. <laughs> I'm not yeah. really sure where the lead into the song's going to be. Where have you been, Greg? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not going to start singing. I, well, I like I said, I had a whole, the whole bit. But if you've not seen the film, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, it really doesn't, does it? Okay. So, anyway, yes. Where have you I, been? I've just, yes. I've just been looking after my neighbor's chickens and fuck all this comic shit. I'm going to become a farmer. Ah, really? And, uh, what can I say? It's very fulfilling to be like you, little fuckers, would die of dehydration if I wasn't replacing your water. In, my, in payment, I'll take your eggs. There's something about that. It's the circle of life, Jeff. And I'm, I feel very good about it. I'm glad to hear it, Graham. I'm, I'm very glad to hear it. I have to say the chickens are um, are, are generally stupid creatures and they're kind of assholes. Oh, they, so, yeah. No, yes to both. <laughs> exactly. While I am in the chicken coop filling the water, this chicken comes up to me, and at first is clearly just curious about what is going on. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why are you? What are you doing with our water bucket? What? What is that thing you're pouring in it? What's going on? And then I hasten to add very gently, but very insistently, just starts pecking my arm. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like, like, what? What are you doing? What are you doing? What uh-huh. are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? 
what are you doing? And it's like, I'm fucking filling your water, you dumb chicken. <laughs> so really, if you think about it, it's, it's not just, the, the idea is it's sort of a smooth transition from comics to chickens, really, right? Well, I, I was going to make a joke about, otherwise we could talk about Howard Chicken. <laughs> I didn't even see it coming, I swear Never to God. Never doubt the pun! Never <laughs> doubt the pun, Jeff. <laughs> oh, man, we're terrible. Not as terrible as Howard Chicken, though. Uh, yay! yay! So, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? I don't even know. I only found out about it, like, I don't know, three hours ago. Oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So, I mean, so let's explain what this is for uh, listeners who may have been living under a rock for the last couple of days. Like Jeff. Like Jeff. Well, you found out, at least. Oh, yeah. Only a few hours uh, ago. I literally, like, I here, think here's, 20 minutes here's before. Here's the crazy they, thing. Yeah. Like, Here's the crazy thing about this whole mm-hmm. shebang. This cover was released on the 21st of June and no one noticed. Mm. No one noticed for more than a week. Mm-hmm. This cover is for the Divided States of Hysteria, issue four. Right. Um, it featured, and I note the past tense because we'll get to this eventually, but Image and Shaken pulled the cover eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, it featured a Pakistani man hung by a noose outside a restaurant with his pants pulled down, his genitalia mutilated, and a racial epithet on his name badge. When I put it like that, when I explain it like that, it somehow feels even more shocking than seeing the image itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, uh, I wrote about this for The Hollywood Reporter yesterday, and just like even explaining it to people, mm-hmm. everyone was like, yeah, but no, like that's that's not what it really is, right? Right. And I'd be like, I can send it to you and you can see, but I also don't want to show you this image. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I am, uh, with the best will in the world, I am somewhat cynical of like the trigger warning concept mm-hmm. because I, I think it's very overused, mm-hmm. but I genuinely think like this deserved it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause there is something legitimately shocking about saying the cover of my comic is not only someone hung, but someone hung with their, like, their pants pulled down, their genitalia mutilated, and a racial epithet. I mean, he's, he's going, he's, like, this was clearly meant a shock. Mm-hmm. Like I said, for more than a week, no one said boo. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday, so, basically someone noticed. And because someone noticed and complained on Twitter, suddenly everyone noticed. Mm-hmm. And it was... I think a lot of people, me included, like I don't check the image solicits, were like genuinely stunned. Mm-hmm. Like genuinely, what the fuck is this? How did this even, like who said, thought this was okay? An image did not respond for more than 24 hours. And multiple people were contacting image and saying, please give us comment. And image's comment was no comment. Mm-hmm. Straight up. Like they weren't even saying, you know, they weren't even not responding. They were responding with no comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cut to today, which is Saturday, July 1st, as we're recording. And Image pulled it, I mean, only about three hours ago, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I literally was reading about it uh, this afternoon. And I'm like, holy shit, that sounds terrible. And then I literally couldn't find an image of it online anywhere. And then when I tried to 
dive a little deeper, but, but that, that's, that's when so I saw the retraction announcement. So. Yeah, that's what's so interesting. No one shared the image on social media. Mm-hmm. Like everyone was like, I don't want to share this image. Yeah. And everyone linked to the image solicit. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I don't think there's a copy of this image online anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is really interesting. Like that, that is somewhat rare in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, there were, there was a lot going on yesterday about this. Um, a lot of it was genuinely, how did this get through image? Like, how did this get to the solicits? Because uh, there was a lot of back and forth people saying, well, image doesn't have an editorial process. Mm-hmm. So that's how it got through. Mm-hmm. Jake said, this is the cover, and they went, okay. Mm-hmm. I am one of those people who's like, there, there must be more to it than that. Because like, if there's literally no editorial vetting process, then what's to stop anyone doing anything at image? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like... I, I feel there, I, I genuinely feel there must be some sort of more, more process there. Uh, if nothing else, someone who, whoever fucking compiles the solicits must have seen it. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell me they didn't look and be like, hang on, should we really be publishing this? Well, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, yes. But w- like, for example, what about that Savage Dragon cover? That's, uh, oh, well, well, that's, that's the other thing. Have you seen the Savage Dragon cover? I've seen the censored version censored of the, version. yeah, yeah exactly. which is all that's been released. Mm-hmm. So at the same time as this is happening, Eric Larson is on Twitter being like, you guys, I'm going all out for my porn Savage Dragon cover. Yeah, yeah. And here it is. I don't mean, it looks like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good way of saying this that doesn't sound prudish. It just looks shit. Mm-hmm. Like it looks, it looks completely exploitative and shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it looks because his his PR for it is essentially I don't think people who have done triple X covers for Image before, which I think is just sex criminals at this point, right? Right. Uh, but he's like, I don't think they've gone far enough. I'm going all the way. And part of my response to that when I saw the image was, Oh, you just like grew up in the 1990s and watch porn. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's something really sort of shitty 1990s porn about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I have to say, I've not seen any of the Sex Criminals Triple X covers. I the only one that I've seen is, uh, I think I got a copy of the Brian Lee O'Malley Triple X variant, which is really <laughs> amusing. I was gonna say, that's, that sounds funny to me. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's just basically, it's, it's, kind of great it's like one of uh like somebody's penis looks like a nintendo monster and it's sort of drawn like a <laughs> 8-bit nintendo cover box thing it's really funny oh my god that's wonderful yeah um but no i, I like I, like the pr definitely makes it sound like larson's like wait we can do porn and no one's done real porn yet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and then you see the image or the censored image uh-huh. And it's, I mean, it looks like Savage Dragon is, I was going to say having a threesome, but I think there's three women there. Yeah, I think it's a foursome at that point. Yeah, yeah I think it's a foursome with three women, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's also something amazingly exploitative about his his way of doing it. So on Twitter, he's basically like, looks like this censored image leaked out somehow. And it's like, well, you're fucking releasing it now. <laughs> like, you, you fucking nerd. It's not a leak if you say, here it is, or I wonder how it leaked. Like, that's a fucking Donald Trump leak, for the love <laughs> of fucking God. Um, and he's, and his, like, censored, not even censored box, it's like censored bubbles all over the place. Yes. Just makes it look even cheaper and tackier. 
It's kind of amazing. Part of me is like, yeah, I'd rather see the uncensored version because this looks amazingly exploitative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You well, know, except, I, yeah. He's doing at the same time, and this, this, the Jacob thing is blowing up. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, Image will not respond to comment, but the Image founder is like, you guys, Savage Dragon's got his dick out. Yeah. Huh? 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 Yes. Oh, man, it's going to be our dick out episode. I just, this is really depressing. It, is it? Oh, God, what else? Well, because actually what happened was uh, some of the comics that I read today include um, Sunstone by – and I wish I'd looked up his name. Oh, it's, it's Stefan Stetchik or something like yeah, that, right? Stefan Stetchik. I, I wish I knew how to pronounce this. It sounds close. But yes, his in part because, as you know, his work has been um, showing up at DC recently. That really yes, lovely that looking – Aquaman. Yeah. And Suicide Squad this week as well. Yeah, which is also super, super lovely. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so I, yeah, I've heard great things about Sunstone. I've heard people be like really positive about it, saying like it's really cute cartooning and also it's, you know, it's not, uh, I don't want to say kink shamey, but like that. It's basically like, because I also don't want to say sex positive, which I hate as a phrase, yeah. but basically it's like, it's fun and it doesn't go, whoa, look at us, we're being naughty. It's just like, hey. These yeah. people are fucking and having fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, which is great. I mean, so, but on top of this, I also read, uh, the first 50 pages of volume two of the complete Crepax by, you know, Guido Crepax collection that Fenographics <laughs> exactly. is putting out. So you really are, like, just on dick out comics. Yeah, kinda, exactly. So I'm like, oh god, the transition between, you know, you've got, you've got Savage Dragon stuff, which is terrible. You've got Sunstone, which is um, it's it's drawn lovely. It is one of those like super best of intentions, like everyone's like full rounded characters. It's it's sort of like a uh, it's supposed to be like a romantic comedy, or um, maybe not even that much on the comedy, but it's a romance that it, that but also it, it, has. It's not like- it's meant to be like a light-hearted romance book, but there's also like BDSM, right? Exactly, exactly. But the BDSM is presented, and I mean, and and it's all all of that is done really well. It's just also really, really dull. It's really dull. <laughs> I mean, I was reading it, and I I was just I was kind of impressed at because. Um, before I read that, the first fifty pages of what I'd read. Uh, God, let's see if I can remember what this what the story is called. Uh, it's uh, the Force of Gravity, and then a prelude to the Force of Gravity, which is kind of. Um, it also is very BDSM ish, uh, and um, because. I have the first volume of, of the complete Cray Packs, but skipped a volume two because I wanted to get to the Valentina stuff. I seem to have overshot. It picks up at a point in the series where Valentina is actually, um, in an insane, well, not, not really, like an asylum, basically an insane okay. asylum. And she's in the process of, uh, you know, having therapy sessions with her therapist, and then she's usually ends up being sedated um, at night uh, by the orderlies, and then usually as she dips into sleep, um, the the pre the the prelude to the force of gravity is kind of um, 
isn't it is basically a, a dream sequence, an S and M dream sequence. And then when the force of gravity gets going, you sort of see how those dreams are basically the toil of apparently some of the stuff that happened to her at the end of volume one of the complete crate packs, but also the, she is being held captive in this asylum and her uh, proclivities make the dreams very, I guess, ambivalent about her condition. Like they're very tinted towards sex, um, you know, sexy BDSM stuff. Then at some point, the story for Force of Gravity starts to kick in, which has to do with a woman, one of the other um, patients at the asylum, who's kind of a sort of uh, sexy millionaire heiress who is basically of, being, of course, she of is. course she is, who's being more or less kind of dominated by her secretary who looks just like her. And it's, you know, what? it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's it's, it's like, that is both terrible and also kind of wonderful. So it, it's, it's the Prince and the Pauper. Right. But, but with BDSM and yeah. like a, a, like, Rich woman and, and her secretary. Right. And so the, one of the things that I actually like about Creepax and also sort of various forms of exploitation cinema, but also I would say the, the, the tenor of the times for comic books, because this stuff was actually the prologue is, was done in the like 70 or 71. The story Force of Gravity is actually done back in '67. So, oh wow, I didn't I didn't think it was that early. For some reason, I always thought Greypox was like late '70s. No, no, he's he's '60s. The Italians were way ahead of everyone else in terms of uh, perverse nihilism, Graham. So I can understand why you were confused. But <laughs> there's also this thing where Greypox is very much like. Um, you know, he's kind of like, oh yeah, Persona. Wouldn't it be hot if they were sexy S and M chicks, but also one of them was maybe a sexy robot? You know, like kind of that sort of crazy. Like I can't even remember. There's another influence where you can definitely see Creepax being like, oh yeah, it's very much like that other hot movie from the '60s, but you know, but sexier. You know, is that like, oh, sexy 2001? <laughs> you know, he's just he's just anything that. <laughs> He's got that sort of art house influence, like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. This Seven Samurai, how can we turn this into a sexy Valentina story? So I kind of admire that. But at the same time, I was looking at this. I'm like, it's a little hard to get. Oh, the Night Porter. That's what it was. I was like, what's the other one? There was one point where the influence, because a lot of Valentina's dreams uh, have her being sort of threatened by Nazi-ish guys and stuff like yeah. that. And, you know, and she's like, oh, no, now I have to be naked except for suspenders. And it's like, okay, okay, we get it. We get it. So, <laughs> but there's kind of the thing of moving between that and Sunstone, which c couldn't be more, you know, different in terms of their approach to subject matter, like entirely different beasts, entirely done for completely different reasons. Uh, and yet, I so I kind of really had this thing like, it's going to be a little weird talking to Graham tonight because there's kind of this thing of... Um, You've just been reading porn all day. I've just been, well, I've just been reading porn, but I've also been reading porn in that kind of bored, researchy way. And also, it is fair to say that in the case of both, it they really are... Um, sort of much closer to erotica. Like I've read Creepax's 
uh, Stravo adaptations, and those go way down the road, much, much farther than anything in the force of gravity in terms of like, um, like pornographic incidents. But even then, there's that weird, like, the need to kind of split the halves and be like, no, but this is, this is erotica. Like, and I don't know if it's just in that weird, like, this is stuff that's being told with an artsy patina in order to avoid, yeah, I, you know, going to jail kind of thing. Yeah, I, I always deal. get, like, I always think that, like, the porn erotica line is almost imaginary. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, erotica is porn that is self-conscious. Uh, yeah, I suppose you know that's I mean? true. Like, I, I'm, always, I'm always like, eh, what? It's so funny, you're talking about Kripax, and I remember reading Kripax... I was going to say as a kid, which is not true. I mm. hasten that very quickly. Um, but, and other British people will have to remind me if I'm true or if I'm imagining this. I want to say that both uh, Milo Manara and Kraypax were uh, reprinted in Crisis, which is the 2008 spin-off comic. Holy smokes. That would... in, the, the trip to Tulum, uh, Manara's trip to Tulum definitely was. Wow. Definitely was in Crisis. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and so it's so funny because I seem to remember, and I've not read Craig since then. So we're talking like early nineties, like mm-hmm. ninety one, ninety two, mm-hmm. um, and I remember Craig being uglier, more Aubrey Beardsley esque mm-hmm. than the Manara, mm-hmm. and me just like aesthetically preferring Manara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's funny, so it's funny, like, even as you're talking, I'm like googling and being like, yeah, it's not as bad as I remembered it being. Cause I kind of remembered it being like, very, um, like aesthetically ugly. Yeah, he, uh, Kripax has a very different style, like it's very much, uh, I don't, I know diddle about art, but if it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, he was big into the crow quill or whatever, as a as a pen, I would totally be into it because he's he's got a scratchy line. He's got a lot of the his joy is in the the thick scratchy line and the overall design sense. It's yeah. easier in some ways for I think I think Kripax has grown a lot more palatable to us because for there have been a lot of people such as Paul Pope who've ingested that style and sort of reconfigured it. To, to well, the yeah, terms, exactly. you know, exactly. so yeah. that taking someone like Pope and then moving to Creepaxe is kind of like, oh my God, you know, it's an easy transition. Um, and in fact, I have to say for myself, reading part of, uh, rereading part of the story of O recently toward the end of things, something that found, that I found really fascinating is, is that Creepaxe's, um, I'm, I, I, he's wonderful to look at just in terms of the way that he conceives of the page as a unit and the way in which he organizes his elements on, on the unit. You know, the design function of the page is like one of his priorities, um, mm-hmm. which can make for just kind of a lovely, almost browsing experience. But reading the, the finale of the volume of that I was reading, um, he's, He's doing amazing stuff with time is the other thing that I realized when I actually sort of was reading the page, his whole, cause it's a whole sequence where O is being presented from like 
you know, one dude to another dude, you know, and of course it, it's the whole O story in this particular the incarnation, you know, starts with her being in love with a guy who sends her off to, you know, basically domination college. She comes out of that. And then in the sequel, he passes her on to, you know, the guy who basically dominated him. And so she moves further down this process and it involves her having to seduce other people to get them involved. There's something kind of icky about it, of course, but towards the end where there's the presentation ceremony where she dons this owl's head and is led nude through this party, the way that, uh, Craypax paces her procession through the party on what, what looks like, um, large single unit pages, but is in fact, really amazingly sliced, you know, you look, when you look at the page, you're like, oh, this is really designed to, uh, you know, you're moving through time as your eye moves across this image, but it also has that classic sort of still frame kind of feeling to it that, that comics can be amazing about. So I, I think, I think Cripax is great. I really enjoy reading him as a comics reader. Uh, but yeah, reading the force of gravity, I was like, this is amazing storytelling, but this isn't real. This it's not like, Oh, hoo hoo, Nelly, let me turn down the lights, you know? And, <laughs> but okay. But with Sunstone, because from what I'm getting from you talking about Sunstone, your feeling about Sunstone is almost like, Oh, it's cute. Yeah, it is. Like it you, is do, you don't find it. You don't find it in any way sexy. You don't find it in any way, uh, basically a great reading experience. You're like, this is an agreeable comic. Yeah, it's an agreeable comic. There's parts of it that are, that are quite lovely. Like he's got a great way with, with, you know, that sort of painterly style of drawing that, that he also, you know, somehow hits that sweet spot of doing things that look very realistic, but capturing kind of, uh, openness of expression that we think is, is a little more cartoony. It was like, yeah, this is all, it's, it was it was lovely to look at and the characters are all um you know it's it's a good positive story it's just it's 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 kind of breathtakingly dull and it also has a sort of um oh god i don't i don't know i mean it's 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 just it's well i, I want to ask you a question about the uh, narrative aspects of it yes um how reminiscent is it of Empowered Volume 1? Because, to my understanding, both Sunstone and Empowered started as pinups that they then decided to add narrative material to. Um, yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. Because, uh, the answer is, is very different in a lot of ways. Warren, uh, because, in part, because, and I only know this thanks to a very generous sort of author's section at the end, uh, Stepchik had started the, had introduced the characters. This was all stuff that he was doing after Burnett being burnt out on comics and comics narrative and more or less started telling stuff, doing deviant art drawings. He was on deviant yeah, art. Right. Yeah. Under, uh, I don't know if his pseudonym, but certainly a name that he created for himself. And he began the process of doing these, uh, basically sort of sexy pinups. 
he's got he's clearly kind of a I, I would say a, a warm hearted guy. So there was a lot of I don't know. It's very fanish. You know what I mean? Like it's very it's very it's very much from the deviant art pages in the sense of people are like like there's there's holiday site gags and there's bwahaha gags and there's like puns on people's favorite movie or characters dressing up in cosplaying and it's it's very much like at, at one point in the course of sunstone he talks about the idea of uh, uh, that that people involved in the in the scene are basically sexy nerds you know that they're mm-hmm. that that it's it's a form of cosplay for them and it's a way of you know it's 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 a way of in, engaging with what they really like but that form of of liking it is very is very tied to kind of nerdiness and yeah you know well, that's and, like that's a super interesting concept to me you know mm-hmm. i'm like that, that's a really interesting thing that i hadn't thought about and i uh if handled properly mm-hmm. i would be really interested in, you know and reading about that, but there's also the like, if he doesn't handle properly, then you literally have someone being like, "It's just like cosplay." Right. No, and I think so. I think that you would kind of like it. I mean, it is, uh, and and this is for uh, I, this is great because I can actually go down this this path much farther further than I had anticipated. Now that I think about it, uh, it's it's. it's it's just very, it's very sweet, which is, which is fine. It's great. It's just the problem, unfortunately, is, is that, um, is it, is that the, is there's no narrative. There's no narrative engine that drives you from page to page, you know, apart from, in theory, the nudity, which is fine. And I, I, Stepchick makes the, um, doesn't, for, for a BDSM comic, he also doesn't go especially, far into showing it you'll see the occasional bits of um you know the the women nude except for corsets or whatever and that's and yeah uh, which is uh, very like, here here's a gag and that's it yeah and and then the, yeah exactly right? yeah and 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 yeah. which is and which is fine i don't think that we you know it's he sets the tone and there's never kind of that sort of like to me sex criminals is it's it's a very sexually discreet comic Although I think that Stepchik is doing it for for different reasons, but it's it's I can't help it. It is so without any sort of narrative drive that it it's it's just kind of ghastly dull. It's it's sort of engaging to look at, but I mean, it was it, it, never is anything so pleasant. Just been so deathly dull. And what's interesting to me is I'm trying to find for myself, like that level of like, what's, what's an acceptable level of narrative drive for me these days. Cause I have to say, I'm incredibly burnt out on the sort of darker, grimmer heel turn narratives that comics seem really, um, obsessed with. Yeah. It's like, uh, someone's getting fridged. Someone's turned evil. Someone, you know, someone's former girlfriend who got fridged is back and now she's evil. Like, it's all, it's just, uh, I want something lighter. And it was so, I sat down with Sunstone after having seen, cause I follow Stepchik on, uh, Twitter and the number of illustrations that he drops down there and also his writing about stuff is like, oh, this guy is a fan. 
he's intelligent and he's also relatively sunny, you know? So I yeah. would think that being able to read this would be fun and it's, and parts of it are fun in very small doses, but. Well, what I'm getting from you is that essentially it reads like a collection of pinups. It, no, I don't want to actually give that conception because honestly, like I said, in the background, back, he talks about how it started as a collection of pinups and essentially how the characters spoke to him and then began the process of creating a story for them. What it feels like is kind of a, I don't even want to say bad. It just feels like a first draft. It feels like a first draft of here's the author in love with his characters. He's showing the characters. He's fleshing out their backstory. Oh, this one likes tea. This one likes coffee. This one seems to have everything, but she's alone. You know, this one is, you know, it's like, does, you know, the two characters, he keeps trying to contrive methods for them to, they're clearly in love at first sight, but the reasons each of them have at first sight for, for hooking up. And then um what's sort of important is he tries to have them more or less deny their relationship more or less because in their heads they're both like, is this crazy? I'm going way too far into this. He's He's doing the very good, like, I'm not going to have this, the usual creepy reasons why romance people, people in romances are... Um, the obstacles to their path where either one or the other's ashamed of what they're doing in bed or one or the other has some horrible competitor aspect or, you know, it's, I've been promised to be married to Lord Sanctimonious or anything. It's none of it is that it's just, but there's no reason. So everything that the, any, the merest whiff of conflict is, is artificial. So like um, Warren is a guy who, Built his volume one of Empowered is basically anywhere from four page to six page stories that built out of his pinups, where he's just so um, in opposition to the idea of doing cheesecake, and also kind of maybe not so much. He's he's very strongly a guy who's always thinking of narrative and ideas, and so it it takes a while for Empowered to hit its stride, but. While it does, it doesn't lack any of the things that we think of as, you know, a quote-unquote professional piece of work, you know. Um, similarly, uh, for myself and, and people know from the podcast, I've recommended uh, Menage a Three like about a bajillion years ago. And I continue to read it as a webcomic. And it's fascinating to me as a quote-unquote sexy webcomic that is – you know, kind of equal pages, you know, it's uh, Giselle Lagasse's amazing sort of Dan DiCarlo-ish art style that I adore, works so well in the story, but they're also doing like, I don't know, you know, it's 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 somewhere between um, Archie and, you know, a, a riff on classic harem manga. You know, and so you've got lots of characters running in and out and having sex and sexy situations and then mistaken identities and a lot of classic farce. And it's actually very enjoyable to read, you know, three times a week. And I I've, have even um, 
paid for the uh, the collections that every year she does a Kickstarter for it. So I get the PDFs of those. And reading that is a PDF collection, even though it's a four-panel gag strip, it it basically moves along like any collected four-panel gag strip with continuity does. Like you're sort of led through it, you get to the end. What fascinated me was for a while, I think because they've been doing the series for so long, at one point they just started introducing a lot of secondary characters. And weirdly enough, she, for a sexy webcomic, she was actually getting complaints from her advertisers that there was too much nudity in it. So she started toning (laughs) down the nudity, which is very, very, very weird. Um, and then the last thing that I want to add, as long as I, again, I'm talking about this, this whole realm of things is over the last year and a half, I've been following Alfie, uh, which is done by the creator in case, um, who I think also probably started out of DeviantArt. He, uh, or she has a, I assume it's a, he has a, a Patreon, um, has, is doing a, a plethora of projects, uh, but also does Alfie like basically four times a week. It's very heavily an erotic fantasy comic about a young halfling girl who realizes she's into sex in a big way. And it's basically a sex comic. It's a very extreme, um, it's a very explicit sex comic. Uh, but it's also one of those things that weirdly enough, I, I most, res- it most pushes my hubba hubba buttons in part because he really did such a great job m- meshing. Oh, here's the characters, but you know, here's a character. She's into sex. Her, the village that she grows up in is conservative. Her mother is super disapproving, but her mother also has a weird, uh, BDSM relationship with, uh, with a wealthy elf merchant. You, it all sounds kind of crazy. Like talking about this stuff out loud. I'm like, this is not something that one should necessarily talk about out loud. And yet, <laughs> what's so funny? What's so funny is like, it just sounds like it sounds like a gen, I don't want to say generic situation, but like it sounds yeah. like, you know, a straightforward situation. Then you're like both an elf merchant. Right. And like the elf alone is, makes me go, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, but as a guy, as a guy who published a book called Erotic Vampire Bank Heist, I definitely think that there's something to be said for, um, having erotica and having something like genre erotica. If you can, if you can figure out a way to have the two play against one another and yeah, for but whatever reason work as both yes well yeah and that's a very important thing to me and what's interesting is so the so arguably he's on chapter two or chapter three i forget which and chapter three the the majority of which is is basically a a big old threesome uh kind of suffers even though he makes the time to set the characters and give everyone different even it's very short crisp you know dramatic needs so to speak there's Mm -hmm. there's a because the characters have needs there's some sort of narrative drive that's moving the scene forward um and yet interestingly enough it's for me i'm kind of like wow this is much more explicit much more the sort of thing that should turn my crank uh, and I'm not lying. I'm certainly reloading the page every day to see what's next. But at the same time, I'm also finding myself being like feeling like Meh, this doesn't quite have the 
Like it's such a people have complained before about the problem of putting erotic sex in their narratives because essentially it just stops the narrative cold or alternately, depending on what you're reading for. If you're reading for the narrative, the sex stops the narrative cold in most cases. Or if you're reading for the the horny parts, the narrative is just like yeah, blah 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 blah. Exactly. Let's get, Let, let's, let's get past the narrative. Yeah, it's let's... funny you said like it's much more explicit because I've never I'd never heard about it before. So as you're talking, I'm, I'm googling it, and it was just when you were like, it's much more uh, explicit than other than you know Manager Three. Like the page comes up, and I'm like, oh, that's much more explicit. Oh yeah. <laughs> like the the first page right now that's there. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Is for example not a not a graphic I would feel comfortable putting on Wait What Podcast. Oh no, not at all. Not, Do you know what I mean? Not at all. Like exactly. like I think that people not would necessarily get upset because like our listeners are adults, mm-hmm. but also. You know, there's time and a place for that particular image. It, yes, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So, whereas Manager 3, it has become like a, a relationship comedy. It's very much a relationship comedy. Do you know what comedy. I mean? Yeah. It's, it really has turned into like Archie, but sometimes they fuck. Yeah. Like it, to the point where, uh, like recently one of the characters even said, oh, I've become an Archie character. Yes. And you're like, you know, you really have. Yeah. Completely. Because, because this has become an Archie comic. Yeah. That, like, it, it has. It's, it's, uh, cause it's not even necessarily, I mean, it's kind of more explicit than Archie, but it's more innuendo laden than Archie than anything. Oh, it's, it's innuendo laden and the, the innuendo is, is somewhat semi explicit. Like, there's even a, there's even a yeah, section where, like, you've got I mean? to, no, exactly. And I'm saying, but I mean, you're not going to, I mean, not that I've been following the recent Archie comics, but you're not going to see two women in bed together, topless, smooching, even though the hands are placed so that you don't exactly. see anything well, that, and the that's, sheets half up and it. all that sort of thing. You like, know? you see the two women in bed together kissing, but it's, like, it's almost old school Marvel comics in that you, you don't see anything. Yeah, you don't see anything. Like the, the angles are as such that right. you see nothing, yeah. you know? Um, it's funny that you're, it's funny that we're talking about Giselle and we're talking about Manager 3 and Archie because this week I got mailed, I think it's called Archie Crossover Collection. Ooh. Which includes the Giselle Illustrated, um, Archie Mr. Ramones. Right. And, uh, and, I mean, she's a great artist. You can tell her from Manager 3. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like Archie Mr. Ramones is just something that honestly, it's super fucking charming because of her art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because she really does find a way to do next generation Dan DiCarlo. Mm-hmm. She gets to do all the cuteness of the DiCarlo, but she gets the characters to act in a way that DiCarlo never did. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they are they are a little more open. Like mm-hmm. she, she is so fucking good as an artist. Yeah. And seeing, seeing the Archie thing weirdly makes me uh, recognize that more than Menagerie 3. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Because I think she has more space to play than she does in the four panel, you know, setup. Yeah. Exactly. The four panel setup is super driven and it, it is very, it's very consistent. Like it's as, as a narrative strip that also tries to work in a joke. It's, it's, it works hard. And, but so yeah, seeing something like, where she gets to open is great. Up. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it really genuinely is a very, very good comic and it does what it does really well. Yes, exactly. But honestly, just seeing the Archie thing, which not only does she get more space to play with, but like it's in color and I think color really makes her work sing. I think so too. Really, I think so too. really makes her work sing. I, I haven't. Uh, I, yeah, sorry. Sorry. No, 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 I no. Just, no. 
I was just gonna say, like, it really makes you go, oh, this woman's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, she's, she should be getting much more attention from people. Yes. No, I absolutely agree. Well, it's tough, because I don't think, I mean, she, she sort of is and has, um, in the sense of but she... That, that's it. It's not like, you know, she's like, on my real dream, destroy Batgirl. You know, right. I think she's doing exactly what she wants to do. Yes. And this is what I find fascinating. Cause as you know, she, she did, uh, Betty Boop for, uh, Dynamite, which mm-hmm. did not really knock me out. I'm not really sure that, that she it, and it was... Langridge and the character all meshed. Like, and it's such a shame because Langridge is such a good writer and she's such a good artist. And that comic was a dud. Yeah. And it really should, in a way, it should have all come together. Like, on paper, uh, the classic, on paper it looks brilliant until no, you no, look at the finished it's product it's on paper. In, yeah. In theory, mm-hmm. like, that seems like a dream team. Yeah. It completely. really does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Giselle has the artistic chops to carry off Langridge's type of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that she does. Mm-hmm. And Langridge's type of humor should play really well with Betty Boop. Yeah. Like, all of it just, it seemed, it really just go, well, this is a comic that should work. And it just didn't. Yeah, yeah. At all. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, kind it of a fell flat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's, it's a shame. Oh, but so yeah, this is the thing that actually, I would be curious, I would love to see an interview with her or to interview her to get a sense of, cause again, my sort of assumption was, if you have, you know, something like Menage 3, you know, essentially a sexy webcomic that is really well drawn, you're going to have like passionate fans. You've got, you know, she's got an ad network on there. And when I, I at one point looked into, and I don't even remember what the ad bid was, but it was not cheap to, to put in a, an ad for erotic vampire bank heist on her website and of course it's all funneled through uh an ad network. So the ad sure. network rep got back to me and I was like, Ooh, oh, <laughs> don't think I can do this sort of amount of money, you know, for my little low budget endeavor. That's but, super interesting. But so I sort of would have figured like she would in other words, she would have the fiscal freedom to do whatever she wants to do. And when every year when she does her Menage three Kickstarter it raises thousands of dollars more or less for the printing of their books and the printing. And also there's all these add-ons for the various menage a three swag, like statuettes and keychains and, you know, campy body pillows and stuff. And you're like, okay, this person is someone who's kind of rolling in money. But part of me is like, so, but is she taking Betty Boop out of, as a, as a labor of love? Is she, is is she really doing what she loves? I mean, it's clear that the Archie stuff is stuff that is really close to her, like, it was, must have been hugely influential to her. So seeing her and when her first several appearances, you know, when they were coming up, she talked about, like, this is super important to me because the Archie stuff means a lot and I, I adore it. But after a certain point, you're kind of like, but what kind of money are you making? Are you making any money? Like, is there, is, where is the money in comics, Graham? Is there money in comics? How will we ever know, essentially? Where, where yeah. is the money in comics? Where that's is the money really, in comics? That's, that's a genuinely good question. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you think about, I mean, I don't have any massive inside knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
but definitely from the little inside knowledge I've that has been shared with me, mm-hmm. like a boom comic and a dynamite comic or whatever are not going to make you a fortune. No, no. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly would be very surprised if an Archie comic would make you money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I could be, be wrong. surprised Archie as well. I have amazing page rates, but I, you know, just there's something about it that just makes me think probably not. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Where's the money coming, Chef? Yeah, I know. Where? <laughs> exactly. Tell me now, damn it. Well, it's no, interesting. No, no, but, but like, I, I, you know, it's, I don't think it's doing a Marvel book. No. I don't think it's doing a DC book. No. Unless I, you're like Bendis or something, maybe. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean. But, it, but it, even then, he does what? Three, four comics a month? Yeah. Yeah. And you really have to wonder, is that out of sheer love or is it out of, He's got a hustle. Uh, I, I was yeah, exactly. Gonna... Is it out of sheer love or is it out of like, I have a mortgage and mm-hmm. I have mouths to feed? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you are friends with Erica Moen and I follow the, her blog posts over at Ojoy oh Sex Toy and Ojoy oh Sex Toy is a huge success. She makes. Yeah. And she, but she has been very honest about the money she's made. Exactly. And the money you know? is or, like... or you look at um, Lucy Bellwood, who was even more honest about the money she made. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. And, like, Lucy made, like, basically didn't make money. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lu- Lucy on her, on her, I think it was just on her Patreon. It might have been publicly beyond that. Mm-hmm. But she basically was like, here was my incoming, uh, here's my income and my outgoing mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. For 2016. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, I feel like I should go to Lucy's house with a food package moments. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not being snarky. No, no, no. Like, well, it really was a, wow, that's like, that's not just, huh, the money's not in comics. That's like, legitimately, how are you able to survive? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she had two years, right? So are you talking about the, cause there was one year where, because what I read was the – I might have missed a post, um, but I read the follow-up post where she's like – because she'd gotten a grant and there was some other book thing that had come through. So she was making what she called like a huge amount of money, which might have been something like $27,000. But she's like, yeah, but the previous year I made eight. And, and it is – and then she broke down. And it really is like how the hell can you survive on like – $8,500 right. a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, like, legitimately, like, how, how does that work? Yeah. You know, and you see, and you just see web cartoonists in particular, mm-hmm. you know, they have quote unquote big followings, mm-hmm. but the actual income part of that is, is terrible. Like, mm-hmm. is legitimately, you know, the expectation of the audience, because they have the visible big following. Yeah. And the real part of like, oh, you know, I have to pay rent. I have to buy food. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Or so it all. You know, people are like, where's the net strip? And it's like, well, maybe they had to take another job in order to fucking, you know, stay in their house. Right. Well, which is some of the, uh, some of the stories that I believe we had heard told about people on some of the, uh, the boom books, even this, even the larger selling boom books having to, to take on a day job to more or less get by. Uh, which, you know, is, it's, it's alarming. And you do wonder, you know that Patrick Zercher's got a Patreon, right? 
I did not. Yeah, he started up a Patreon recently, and of course he's drawing like action comics. Action comics. Yeah, yeah, but uh, he he specified he t- said like I I started this because I was talking to a comics great that I hugely admire who said like get yourself a Patreon, and that's that's kind of stunning. What's interesting is is Patreon, as far as I can tell. Uh, Patreon has changed things up because it used to be you could sort of tell how much money people were being paid generally, and now I I think that's being hidden. I really can't tell. It's like oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Un- unless unless they've just unless he's set this in a way that I didn't know that we could. But if you go and look, it says nineteen patrons, and his goal is maybe he's just got it set by patrons, where it's like nineteen out of twenty five hundred patrons. But you don't know. I guess he's his 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 only access level is three bucks. So I guess you can say that he's making, you know, under $60. I mean, he just started it, but, you know, and he's doing it to do a comic that he wants to do and that he's going to present to, you know, process posts and also pages in progress. But you're like, so what's, what is happening here? I forget, was Rucka, didn't, wasn't Rucka's thing a, a Patreon as well? The thing that he was no, doing Ru- with? Uh, no, it wasn't a Patreon. It was a, it was a Kickstarter, wasn't it? Was it? I accept it was being updated on a page by page kind of basis, right? Maybe he started it before there was, maybe it was just a flat out, um, God, what's the name of that steampunky thing? I, I, I know it. It's, this it, is really good. Lady no, Greg Saber. Rucka, Greg Rucka does in fact have a Patreon. Oh, he does? Yeah, I just, I just looked. No, he doesn't have a Patreon. He has a Patreon account, and he's supporting people's Patreons. Oh, okay. Well, that's wonderful. Good old Greg Rucka. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. Not that there would be anything wrong with him being like, hey, people support me. I mean, I'm clearly, Graham, I'm a big fan of people being able to do that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, listeners. You know what I'm uh, talking it was, about. It looks like it was Kickstarter. I'm I'm looking right now. Oh, There's but a it's... Kickstarter saber. Okay, but that for was the, the Kickstarter like, for right. Yeah. But he did it as a for free webcomic until they got that going. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. No, but it's true. Like, where, so where where's the money in comics? I is it an image? I mean, you, you know, know, like, yeah. is it? It's uh, there. There was a thing in the. I think I've told you this before. I get the I get the print Guardian Weekly. Mm-hmm. Like the, the weekly international print edition of the Guardian, and in this past week's edition, they had a "You guys, self-publishing novels is where it's at" piece, which seemed a like you know five to ten years out of date. Yeah, uh, but and it was actually it was actually turned out being a very interesting piece, I should say. That uh, at the end was basically like this is all changing now. Like, it's becoming a very different marketplace. Everyone is finding it much harder to hustle. Publishers are getting involved. Like, the model is changing again. But its basic argument for why this is good for authors was if you publish through a publishing house, you're going to get maybe 7% of the the, uh, the sale. Yeah. And if you publish self-publish through Amazon, mm-hmm. you're going to get 75%. Right. And they're like, that's a significant difference. Mm-hmm. And part of me is like, what is the image breakdown? Oh, the image, 
And it's basically you get all the money with the exception of like however much you spent on it, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which and what they spent on it is is very slight. You know, they, as I recall, and I could be wrong because I know it's been explained to me before, but it's it's been such a long time. Image basically takes their printing costs. There are additional costs that you can opt to pay in related to additional advertising, I think. But part of the reason why, I, I mean, and this is it, this is it. There is no editorial, you know. Now, there may be, uh, there may be an element, uh, there, there may be some pay to play side to image. I know that there are other publishers that, although they don't talk about it, will actually publish under their imprint if you, if you pay them. But the, you know, the thing, the thing with the image, is is that with image is is that it's very hard to break out past that level of to cover your printing costs. This is something that Jim Zub wrote about a ton, and of course we're also incredibly indebted to Kieran Gillen talking about the breakdown of things. Because of course, as Gillen Gillen was the one who said, like if you are making if you're selling twenty thousand copies uh, of your image book you are pretty much expected to buy drinks because you are getting paid more than what you're making. Uh, or you're getting paid. Yeah. You're getting paid more than what, what you're getting paid at some, something like uh DC or Marvel, um, unless you're at the very top of their page rates. And by the time you get to the point, I mean, that that's why Brian K Vaughn, who's doing 30 or 40,000 with saga is seen well above and beyond uh, what he was making um, at Vertigo, but not only just for, for, for his basic page rates, but I think beyond in terms of his sales as well. And then of course, by the time you get up to the top of the scale of Kirkman at 60 or 70,000 copies with, I mean, Kirkman has his own imprint now and he has, he's got an editor on his books. God help him. Whatever he's paying Charlie Adlard is is not enough as far as I'm concerned, but you know, over time they've added, um, you know, uh, there's an inker, there's an editor, they've got, you know, he's more or less has a, a, a publishing house for, for lack of a better terms, but mm -hmm. the amount of money that he's also pulling in from being able to sell 60,000 copies of walking dead plus a month, in addition to the trades, uh, he's, that's that's a lot of money. So basically, where's the money in comics? It's with Robert Kirkman. And <laughs> the image model is very much set up to this idea of like, you do not see crap because they do not even pay a basic page rate. You know, they don't pay yeah. anything. That's the stuff that you do. In fact, it was um, Alex DeCampi was talking about the fact she works with Carlos Speed McNeil on No Mercy. They've done at least, what, 11 or 12 issues, two trade paperbacks. And uh, DeCampi said, she's like, I haven't seen any money from that. I, I have seen nothing. But she also said, because, you know, my goal, you know, the, the artist gets paid first. Yeah. But, you know, so uh, that's. 
And no mercy is like who knows where it is in, on the sliding scale of image books. I say who knows because Graham can turn around and Google it and tell me in like two seconds. Yeah, I, I'm literally about I'm looking literally looking up uh, Comic Con right now. Yeah, you know, anecdotally, um, I was uh, hanging out at at San Diego Comic Con a couple of years back when Chew was still being published, and and John Lehman was insistent that he hadn't seen any real money from not the single issues. I don't know if the trade money was starting to come in, but the extent to which he saw, again, the, most of it was ending up going to the, to the artist was my understanding. So which, which is a, which is a common thing, right? I feel like yeah. I heard that a bunch yes. for, from, from creator on books. They're like, Oh no, no, you pay, you pay the artist first. Yeah. Because they're basically doing more work. Yes, they're doing more work and it takes up more of their time. They have to more or less, you know, writing, writing a, a monthly comic book is something that, that you can write in a weekend. But, you know, you've, to draw it, it takes, it's closer to a month. Unless you're Jack, unless you're Jack Kirby, you know, which the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of people are not. Are, are not. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, No Mercy is not looking good right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I've not found I've not found it on the top three hundred. Okay, so maybe it's never even charted, which is funny because I'm like, oh, it's got to be everywhere. But of course, you know, I shop at Comics Experience where they rack, they order multiple copies, they rack multiple copies. Uh, I had a subscription to it until I, I actually maybe no, I think I was just in every month and I was picking it up up until I stopped. So. Yeah, it's either, for some reason, it's not showing up in Comic-Con when I search for or it's actually not in the top 300. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of... What? <laughs> Are you not recording? Have you not been recording all of this? No, I picked the head speaker out with my fucking big fat feet. <laughs> okay, I can That's hear fine. you. Can you hear me now? No, it's it's now it's yeah. fine because I was sure that it was going to be that classic. Usually with the Mac, when I take the when the headphones are out and you plug it back in, it's like I have no idea what you're talking about. What what's happening? I don't know. I'm just going to continue nope. playing in the most it's, annoying way possible. It's all good. Thank goodness. It's all good. Yeah. What when you say shit like that, I honestly am like, you're not recording this. You've not been recording. This. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if Jeff puts all this up, let let it be known. In the past, when Jeff has had that particular shit, yes, it's because we've not been recording the entire conversation to date. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Which has only happened. God, how many times has it happened? Has it only been like I'd love three, to say three times? Yeah, I think it's been three times in some in, in what's closing up on two hundred and fifty episodes, over two hundred and fifty episodes, if you count the Baxter buildings, right? So, yeah, that's yeah. that's not terrible. I want to say there was one time. No, not at all. Yeah. There's one time when uh, you were recording, yeah. and then, like, for some reason, it didn't export or something? Yeah, yeah, it crashed, and then what didn't export? That was back when we were using a different method. I don't remember how it worked. But, yeah, no, needless to say, it's happened three times, and each time, uh, listeners, Graham has been a fucking saints about it he has not been like i will kill you and i will stab you with your own two fingers after i cut them off of your hands he's actually pretty low-key about it which is great because i'm if like I cut off if i cut off the fingers from your hands how are you going to record it next week <laughs> graham you'll have gouged out my eyes i love the idea that 
that after you do that, I'm like, well, you know, fair play. You can still talk we'll if talk I'm next to week. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Good Christ. Graham, Graham McMillan, hardest working monster in show business. <laughs> oh man. You know, I, while we're doing this, I am still looking for No Mercy in the charts and either Comicron it does not like it or it is like it's not been charting. And it, and like, it, which could be fairly nice. solidly. In fact, I'm going to look up the first month and see if it's like even shows up in the first month. Yeah, you probably should. Hey, did you see, um, Related to this, I think there was a link in. I want to say yep, over oh, it, Jeff, it yes. launched to twenty thousand. Ooh, and then just slipped from there. I'm sure. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Anyway, did I see what? Uh, did you see the link that was basically how miserable it is? Like the uh, the front. I was at the beat where this. Um, it was a link to an article. I want to say. Motherboard or Ionine or Kotaku, basically a, a French artist who ended up moving to Japan and actually became a successful uh, animator in anime and was talking about the life and basically was like, yeah, it's amazing to be able to do this. There's lots of things that you can, you know, things that you can learn to be able to fit into the industry in advance and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, well, what's some of the drawbacks? And the drawbacks are, was him being like, literally everyone is so poor. Everyone like it's, it's just the animators are nonstop working all the time. Death from overwork is, is a thing that I've known it to happen to like three different people. And oh, Jesus yeah, let me see. Let me see. Uh, I, I did not see this. So animator. you should a put it in the show notes because people will want to see this. Uh, baby, I will want to see this as well. Yeah, it, it is at Kotaku. Uh, let's see if I can find some of the, the big highlights from here because it was kind of amazing. Thomas Romain or Thomas Romain is born in France. He's 39 years old. He moved to Tokyo in 2003 to work as co-director and art director on a French-Japanese anime series called uh, Oban Star Racers. And uh, they were able to secure funding from European funders and they showed up in Japan they had money with them to make their show with Japanese studio after at their production ended. He stayed in Japan and he wanted to learn the craft. He was hired by a studio. He began designing back, uh, backgrounds for engage planet kiss dome, a sci-fi anime. Uh, he calls the show a mess and one of the worst projects he's worked on so far, oh, God. <laughs> but the designs were cool and the other staffers were incredibly talented um, and he's worked his way up to where I think he's now eventually a, a, an art director. Um, and so let's see what it, it, so he has some advice, but the third piece of advice is not to come with empty pockets. You will not earn enough to make a living out of it until you become good enough. And this can take a couple of years because of course it really is like you're more or less an apprentice for the, as you sort of learn the whole process. But, um, What's the mo so the the question was what's the most uh, difficult thing about working in the anime industry and his answer was definitely the large quantity of work to deal with in a short time period. I was surprised by how short the production schedules are and how scarce the teams are due to the shortage of artists. Studios are open 24/7 and people are also working on the holidays most of the time. You get emails during the night. It's totally normal to have meetings during the nights or the weekends. You really have to be ready to work hard to reach the same level of commitment as your Japanese coworker other Otherwise, the risk is they may not accept you as one of them. I was surprised by the number of production miracles. 
Japanese have the ability to achieve impossible tasks very quickly only when they have no other choices left. Although it would be more reasonable to refuse those conditions, everybody complies. This is actually how it works all the time. Nothing moves according to the initial planning. It's only when everybody thinks there is no time left that the project will never be completed in time that production speeds up. People work day and night without wasting a single minute until the very last second. When you see a movie on its release day or watch an anime on TV, people were still working on it a few days ago or even a few hours ago. Sometimes it's not even finished and the drawings are polished for the DVD Blu-ray release. Next question is, what industry stories, ha industry horror stories have you heard? And he says, it's not only that I've heard horror stories, I've seen them. Basically, most of the people are overworked. The problem is, is that in the traditional Japanese way to behave in society, people tend to say yes when they're asked to work under impossible conditions. For the sake of the studio and the project team, they will do the impossible, even stay several days at the studio in a row and therefore put their own health at risk. I've seen people going home only once per week or working 35 hours in a row. I've even met an animation director who was going home only once per year to their parents. She wasn't renting an apartment. She was living at the studio, using the public bath and manga cafes to rest a little bit from time to time. A married couple, a director and his wife, who was a character designer, were camping in a corner of the studio, sleeping in sleeping bags until the production was finished. Some people don't allow themselves to take a break even if they are sick because they don't want to spend their small wage on health care. Life expectancy amongst animators isn't very old. I've seen people passing out from work. At work, the worst has been people dying from Kiroshi, which is death by overwork. One of my colleagues died from a stroke 10 years ago while he was working in a different studio. Staff work for several companies, working for several companies at a time is rather common. Another one barely recovered from a severe stroke as well. Recently, I've heard of the death of an animator working on a pretty famous show in another studio, but everybody kept it secret, probably not to damage the company. This said... People are very friendly to each other because basically everyone knows they're more or less experiencing the same very hard conditions. People share the same fate working in this terrible industry, but doing a work they deeply love. <laughs> work meetings are fun. We are laughing a lot and enjoying creating anime, which I'm just like, Jesus, God, what? Well, I'm glad you're having fun in this worst job ever. Yeah, seriously. I'm like, that's kind of... I, I... It's what's funny is when you started that, I was like, it's comics, Jeff. It's just like comics. And the more you went on, I was like, oh, this actually makes comics look good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you saw, again, another great thing where uh, at the beat, but this was maybe a year ago, Heidi had found um, uh, a, a manga artist who who published his schedule, his schedule, her schedule. They were working manga ka, and it was literally – 14 to 16 hour days, like seven days a week. And I think in crunch time where it's the last day before the deadline, those out, it goes up to like 18 hours. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's an amazing schedule, but it is kind it's an impressively brutal schedule. And I also had this thing of like, what the fuck? And what's great is at this article, most of the comments are people being like, what the fuck? Who wants to work in that industry? And of course, someone's saying like, where's the money? Where does the money go to? You know, like, yeah. And well, but they, but again, 
what if there's not that much money, Jeff? Well, and that's what people were saying. People were for anime. People are saying like, there's not a lot of money there. You know, they're they're like we think of it as a big thing, but and it's very much like comics. Looking at a place like Boom, it drives me up a wall. But that whole idea of like the publisher barely ekes out a margin for most of their titles, and then when they get a hit. It manages to raise all the boats in the sense of, but usually what happens is publishers just then go on to publish more titles. They don't, I don't, I could be wrong. Maybe people do turn around and be like, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm super curious what's going to happen to Boom now that Fox has basically bought half the company. Yes, exactly. Like, is you it know, going to be better? Like conditions? that happened what, two, yeah. three weeks ago? Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't think so. No, I think just I the opposite. It. I think it's, I think it's going to go, I think it's going to, <laughs> get more pressure to have to create ip yeah and that you know there's going to be even less ownership there could be even less value to working for boom yeah as a result i i would love to be wrong we'll Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if nothing else i think more than anything i think seeing what happens to lumberjane movies Mm -hmm. might be instructive but yeah we'll see but yeah but interestingly enough you know Fox bought it was something like forty six percent, right? Of them. I think so. Yeah, it was a huge chunk. Uh, and I, I, but I feel like this is like no one has really talked about it. Yes. Like Fox bought half of Boom, and everyone was like, "No, no, no!" Did you see what DC did today? And right. It was like Fox just bought half of Boom, you guy. Yes. Well, because no one this really knows be- what that means. Like, what does that mean for anyone other than Ross Ritchie? What does it mean for Ross Ritchie? Like. Not very many people know, you know, does that mean that, does that mean that everyone at the, that, does that mean that people working on the books see more money? Does that mean that the people on staff sees more money? I mean, does it mean that Ross Ritchie sees more money? Like, how do those things work out? No one, and I mean, this is such a problem in America slash maybe everywhere is people don't talk about the money and people make it a point not to, you know? But but watch like it's funny you're like you know maybe it's great for Rush Ritchie and my first thought is does Rush Ritchie actually even own Boom? Uh, un- like do we know that we know he's a founder. He's the founder, but unless he like carved out slices for everyone a while ago, I thought that he was still the owner. But hmm. I guess, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like I I honestly have no idea. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for example, I know that Valiant has, has part of Valiant has been, uh, sold, or at least they've had, they've had venture capital money, which, you know, makes me think that someone owns a piece of Valiant. Right. You know, and, and I think that I wouldn't be surprised if Boom has gone through similar things. Mm-hmm. The Boom has had, you know, money put in and therefore people own parts of Boom. It's like, what, what if Ross Ritchie doesn't even see it? What if, you know, shady venture capitalist number seven? It's like, I got a great payday from Fox. You know what? Which is, which is quite possible. Which is quite possible. That being said, I would be impressed at their ability to, cause it was not that long ago that there were people in web comics who'd been approached about doing covers for Adventure Time who were like, uh, what the fuck is this? Like basically, like I was basically told that I could yeah. have a hundred dollars to do a cover for a comic book. What the fucking shit is that? You know? So if that, considering that was relatively recently, like, who, you know, it's hard to imagine, but, yeah, yeah, but, but maybe. But, yeah, but at know. the same time, like, boom, 
boom paying no one mm-hmm. does not necessarily mean that there's there no money. people who yeah, have exactly. invested in boom. Yeah, that's true. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, those two, those two are not necessarily contradictory. Just because Boom was like, hey, because like Boom's rates were famously low, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like we've both seen numbers. Yes. Boom's rates are famously low. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that someone else has not already put a lot of money into Boom before this. True. 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 Yeah. No, it's true. And maybe all the all of that money went in. Again, it's that idea of like. How low the the lower the overhead prices for these things are, the lower you can more the more you can more or less quote unquote make money. And the amount of money that you make is not that is is more often than not it's not that great. But it's that idea of like if you manage to eke out two thousand dollars profit, you know, on a comic book, you and by you I mean the publisher person at the top. And it's like, okay, well, if I publish 50 comic books, you know, I publish 25 comic books a month, that's $50,000. And then I keep, you know, and I do that 12 times a year, but, you know, in order to, you, the, and that's the thing that's, that is always the problem with the, with the way that, you know, industrial capitalism is set up is like the cheaper the money is to create the product, the more profit that you can see. And or the lower you can drive the process on the product such that you see, you know, the the little few cents per copy that you make ramps right up if you're selling, you know, 70,000 copies or whatever, you know. But Graham, I got to tell you, it's 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 a weird I don't it's weird that we start talking about boners and we ended up talking about dollar bills. I feel that it's just like this. Welcome to America Welcome 2017. To America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you talking about that, you know, basically pumping out the products makes me go, hey, Jeff, so should we update the Marvel Legacy grumping from last week? Oh, yeah, please. Uh, so how, what have you been paying attention to with Marvel Legacy this week, Jeff? Uh, I paid... Have you been, have you been happily staying away from it all? Uh, yes, I, life has been so godforsakenly busy for me. The only things that I really paid attention to were, uh, Todd Allen's, uh, pieces over at the beat where he talked about the sales range and where he pointed out that, uh, Walking Dead is basically the number two top selling comic in the industry. Um, when you, when you fact, when you factor out what he calls first issues and special events for Marvel, um, what you see at really reliably is you've got Batman, then you've got fucking Walking Dead, which to be fair, my understanding is, is I'm not sure that he's adjusting Marvel. Uh, Walking Dead has actually been doing its own um, series of of uh, variant covers, but still, yeah. when you strip that away, it still drops down to about from 74,000 to like somewhere between 63 and 68, which is still pretty much better than everything that Marvel's doing. So I saw that. I think I saw a few uh, grumpy pull quotes from you at your Twitter that I don't remember. Um, there was something that was really, oh, it was the Stan Lee quote. That, so, and that's it. That's almost all I know about comic news is they got Stan Lee to come so out and say something about here's Marvel. What here's what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Marvel had a, a retailer call on Thursday. Ooh. That was meant to be. That was meant to be about generations. Mm-hmm. Generations, you may or may not remember, is the, like the ten book, like 
one sh- ten one shots of yes. it's the old versions of the characters with the young versions of the characters. Um, they had the, they had this. This has been on the books for a while. Marvel's going to have a retailer call. It's going to be about generations. It apparently turned into a legacy call. Amongst the many other things I was told by retailers yes. after the call was after Marvel explained what Legacy was, they asked any questions and there was genuinely an awkward silence because no retailer could think of anything to say that wasn't what the fuck. Wow, really? Yeah, that's not a good sign. Um, Legacy is... Reading between the lines, Legacy was sold to retailers one way and is turning out to be something very different indeed. That sort of seems there what are, it's like, yeah. Um, there are multiple things that came out of the call from what I heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is the renumbering of books to the quote, Legacy numbering mm-hmm. is not line-wide at all. It is literally selected by Marvel. What? Wow. Yeah. Which, from what I can tell, is doing getting it close to anniversary issues. Mm -hmm. I'll actually give you a breakdown in a second of what titles are renumbering. Sure. Um, It also seems to be, and this is not something I heard from the call, but this is something I pieced together from various sources, that whereas Rebirth was... Everything starts with a new number one. Everything starts at the beginning of the new status quo. Mm-hmm. Legacy might actually start at the end of the old status quo, which seems like the weirdest fucking idea in the world. What? Like, wait, I'm not. So for ex- okay, uh huh. So for example, uh, Marvel this week. Oh, the other thing is, remember the here's all your animated gifts mm-hmm. of okay. last week. Yeah. Marvel is apparently going to re-announce the legacy books, <laughs> like, over the next few weeks. This time with, like, creators involved and what the comic's about. Because they basically accepted that no one actually has any fucking idea what legacy is at this point. So the, the like, we're going to announce as many comics. Oh, and it's not 52 titles. It's going to be 53 titles. Right. Right. 53 titles. That because part I think did see. Yeah. Yeah. Also... It's not the entire line unless they're cancelling Runaways issue 2. In other words, Legacy is going to be part of Marvel's superhero line. There will be other superhero comics from Marvel in addition to Legacy. But Legacy is 53 times. Oh my god, fucking Marvel. Jesus Christ, this is ridiculous. This, this, is, this, is, this is what I mean by Legacy will start with the end of the old status quo. They released uh, an image on Friday, which is, here is the 52 legacy titles we have announced. Here's the issue title where legacy begins. And here is the plot that we are going... Here's the name of the storyline that it's going to feature. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Spider-Man issue 789 is going to begin a storyline called Fall of Parker. Does that sound like a relaunch? Or a new beginning? Or does it sound like the end of Dan Slott's... It sounds like the end of Dan Slott's run. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Marvel Toon 1 starts with the fate of the four. Mm-hmm. Because, again, from what people have told me, it's basically the lead-up to a new Fantastic Four title. 
it's not a comic in and of itself. Uh, where where's the other one that was super weird? It's the Iron Man. Yeah, Iron Man starts with the search for Tony Stark, which again is clearly the end of the current plot line, as opposed to a new beginning. So so you know, Mar- seems, okay. Like that seems absolutely to me. So so it sounds it sounds like Marvel knew they needed to do quote unquote something. You know, especially yes. as they saw the writing on the wall for Secret Empire. Uh, they were looking, of course, to something like DC Rebirth and the success of it and figured they could rip off the superficial aspects of it. But to their either credit or detriment, they have no interest in actually forcing the writers or creators that they have on their quote unquote bigger books or their bigger creators on their books to actually wrap things up sooner. So in order to make those things look right. Yeah. Here is the very telling thing. And I've seen rich report this in bleeding cool, which makes me think that the people who have told me it were not just like exaggerating. Uh It was not said outright on the retailer call, but it was apparently heavily implied that Legacy starts in fall 2017. Mm-hmm. But the relaunch part of it starts in spring 2018. Which either means Legacy itself is a stopgap or Legacy is going to last more than six months. Mm-hmm. And the the makeover part of it is six months away. Both parts of that sound ludicrous to me. Mm-hmm. Like, sound like a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, well, well, I mean, yeah, again... I, I'm, not quite, I'm not quite sure what the hell is going to go... Like, what the hell is going to happen. Because Legacy is still being sold as, like, this is going to revolutionize the comic industry. Well, yeah. And imagine but... seeing that and Spider-Man, which is still basically the top-selling book of the Marvel line. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man, like, leads Marvel Legacy off with what is essentially chapter 13 of a 13-part story. Right. Does that not seem ludicrous to you? Well, I... I... It, looks, it looks like Wade is still writing Avengers and Champions, because Avengers and Champions are crossing over really? with the first month of Legacy. Jesus. Yeah. World Collide is the name of the storyline. The X-Men books are crossing over. X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold both have Mojo Worldwide parts one and two. Mm-hmm. Like, it's super weird. It's super weird. Why do you basically go, this is the start of something big, and it's actually not the start of anything? Right. Well, the the answer being you are desperate to hang on to anything or you want to see if you can flip the script sales-wise. And I mean, and I think that's it. It could well be that Marvel was like, you know what? Let's see, let's see how many numbers we can change by just saying that we're going to change. And then seeing the gauging the interest that they have, they're like, "Okay, this isn't really going to work. We're going to have to build something else out." I mean, or something, you know, I mean, or else it's that kind of sort of the way that, again, they're sort of nabbing, as you know, DC, 
One of the things that's interesting about DC Rebirth that I find fascinating is you've mentioned that they've talked several times about this is it's a three year story, right? Isn't that what they were saying? Two years. Story? Two years. Two years. Yeah. Right. Two years. Yeah. Which, thanks to the miracle of double publishing, a lot of stuff is going to end up creating, generating maybe four years of content. You know, more than two traditional years, certainly. Uh, you know, maybe Marvel was like, yeah, we'll take that. We'll take that step. We'll just pretend our DC rebirth, our Marvel legacy is six months and then we're real instead of two years. And then we're really going to move into the genuine new thing, which is going to be rebooty or whatever. The difference being Marvel has gone through this shit so many times I'm stunned that anyone believes them at all. And frankly, the more that this shit came out, just the, just the whole like, oh, we're turning the industry upside down. Here's a bunch of gifts to me was just this thing of like, I would be hor I would be terrified if I was a retailer because you are shackled to a lunatic, you know, you're to a pathological liar who is, completely convinced that nothing has any repercussions to them whatsoever. And that is not, that is not an ideal business partner, you know? So Marvel sent, out cocaine, this, uh, <laughs> Marvel sent out this uh, graphic that all the, the titles and their storylines listed on Friday with a press release that was just amazing in its wrongheadedness mm-hmm. and that's also part of what stuns me about legacy legacy legacy's pr has been terrible so far mm-hmm. so legacy's new press release on friday included a quote from chairman emeritus stan lee yeah. which is this i love the concept of returning to the classic characters as they were originally portrayed without losing the brilliance and excitement of marvel's newest generation of heroes excelsior yes that is an amazingly empty statement don't get me wrong Stanley's like 96 years old, so mm-hmm. sure, whatever. That they're even wheeling him out in the first place is stunning to me. Mm-hmm. And that his, 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 his quote is basically, you guys, it's the heroes you remember, but I promise we're not getting rid of the new ones. But it, that is then, that quote is then followed by the following. Simply put, Marvel Legacy will offer, and this is a bullet point list. Oh, I love the bullet the point list. spectacular character returns. Yeah. The most spectacular character returns, epic stories adding to the next chapter of the Marvel Universe by the industry's top talent. I just want to point out, it the industry's top talent. You might think industries would be singular. No, it's plural. <laughs> the industries, I don't know what industries they're talking about. Heroes fighting villains. That's actually a bullet point. Yes, I That's love that. That's one of their selling points for Marvel yep. Legacy. Yep. Clean jumping on points for all readers clearly displayed using dynamic new trade dress, the return to original numbering for many series. So yeah, how are you going to have a clear jumping on point for Spider-Man issue 789? Yeah. Also, the last one, did we mention the most spectacular character returns that comic fans have demanded? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, this... uh, they're really, they're right. really putting down the the character returns because apparently we are talking double digits, and we are talking high double digits of character returns. There was a figure mentioned on the call that I'm not going to say here because I don't want to really, I don't want Marvel to kill me. Right. But it's high double digits, Jeff. Uh, how many people can like, we talk about you think returning? You want to make character returns mean something. 
Jeff, I if you if you want to put some music under and cut out the number, I will tell you the number right now. No, 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 no. That's fine. That's fine. I I I always love cutting <laughs> to the the cutting to music is such a great gag. I just don't want I don't want to kill that. Plus, I always feel terrible using copyrighted don't music. So, you. so but okay, but Graham, you can just sing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. We, if I was smart, I would cut the guys and dolls. But uh so, but I'm just like, how many people? As Marvel killed off, I haven't been paying attention that I, we care about or quote unquote I, their I, returns. I I could give I could give them the number. My first thought was, I don't know who that is. Exactly. Like, I can think of a bunch of characters that killed off. Okay, they've killed off um, Bruce Banner, although right. apparently he's back in Secret Empire this week. Uh, they've killed off um, Professor X. They've killed off Cyclops. Mm-hmm. They've killed off. I mean, Reed and Sue, I guess. I even guess though we know so. they're not dead. Yeah, sure. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? I, I, like, legitimately, who else? I, I honestly don't uh, The original Fury? The original? The Watcher. They've killed off the Watcher. Right. Um, yeah, and then, I, then I really am coming yeah, along. I don't know. Like, what? Like, uh, Jean, Jean Grey Phoenix? I like, think, I guess. Hank, is Hank, oh, did Hank Pink Pimp bite it? Right, oh, right, I mean, he did, right. He, Hank, he's that Ultron like yeah. half Hank Pym, half Ultron right now. So oh, kind right. of Hank Pym. Yeah, so uh, Hank Pym. I thought of one and then I, I forgot but, it. Uh, who's uh oh right. God help us, let's not bring back uh Captain the the original Captain Marvel, uh Marvel. Oh uh, sure. But, but he's dead, sure. So Captain Marvel. Right. Um The Sentry. The Sentry, you could bring back the Sentry. We're up to eleven now. Sure. Yeah, because he's he's really he's he's really popular. Um I mean, I, I genuinely don't, like, there's gotta be X. Oh, Wolverine! Oh, right. Sure, Wolverine, right? That would be dumb, but okay. That, I think they, I, that's one that they should not do, but sure, by all means, that's another one. Uh, oh, you know they're bringing him back. You know they're bringing him back. But see, this is the thing that's great, is, of course they're going to bring him back, but I say, they should leave him dead for a couple of more years. Honestly, because the fact is, he's been dead for a couple of years. Not only have you not heard any complaints, but thanks to that Logan movie, you actually have people who are stunned that that Wolverine is quote-unquote dead, and it sort of matches up with continuity, not perfectly, but with having old man Logan and having Laura in... The Wolverine outfit. And all the Wolverine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Currently, both of those titles are being enjoyed by fans and have the option of bringing in new readers. So, of course, Marvel should bring back the original Wolverine, preferably in the next four months, to punch themselves in the dick. But if they were smart, they would they would wait it out, like, another couple of years. Because it's that... It's kind of like with Thor. The longer they hold off, the more that stock is going to grow... Plus, it's currently people are into these characters. Like, I do not, I would not, I hope they're not stupid enough to fuck that up. But it would not surprise me if they were. Um, I'm I'm literally on Marvel.com looking at their list of deceased characters. Because oh, there you on go. Marvel.com, there is a list of deceased characters. Of course. And I'm is. trying to find, like, I'm trying to find, like, names, like, legitimate names. Dum Dum Dugan? Did Dum Dum Dugan die? Did he die? But Dum Dum Dugan is dead. But he came back as an LMD, so I mean he's kind of around. Right, right. Balder is apparently dead, so sure, maybe Balder. Um, Balder's been dead for a long time, though. I thought, right? 
Well, just sure, but so what? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there's no one in the seas, apart from Cyclops, but we've said him. Um, the D's, the D's aren't looking great. Doc Samson, I guess? Hmm. Dr. Druid? Wow. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, there's no one in the East. Forge apparently is dead. I'm sure people will be really happy about Forge coming back in the X-Men books. <laughs> um, let's see. Gee, there's lots of Ghost Riders who are dead, apparently. Oh, yeah, sure. Um... Herbie. Herbie is dead. He's a robot, so who knows? Jim Hammond's Human Torch is apparently dead, so you oh, bring him back. Really? God, how many times do they gotta uh, bring that guy back? I mean, I'm literally, I'm literally like, how the fuck do we get to, to the number? Is Namor still is dead? Like, did they kill off? Like, like they... legitimately high. Right. N- Namor's not still dead, right? Like, didn't, didn't he get killed off? No, like... Na- Namor's back. Oh, okay. Na- yeah, but he's back. Um, yeah, it's not looking good. I'm through M, and I'm still... Mysterio, I guess? <laughs> Mysterio. Uh, and Namorita yeah, are back. Okay. Wow. Night Thrush is apparently dead. Says Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler's back already. What yeah. are you saying? What? Jack Monroe Nomad. There you go. You can always bring Nomad back. Oh, yeah. Uh, Omega the Un... Mm-hmm. I mean, Omega I the like, I said, like, we're looking through... <laughs> We're looking through Marvel.com so like, and we're like, yeah, I can't find anyone. Jeff, like, if we come up with 11, there are many more that they're promised are going to, going to come back. Oh my it's, god. I mean, that's just it. Character turns can't just mean dead characters. It's got to mean other characters as well. Do you know what I mean? Because if you expand sure. past that, then you've got, like, Power Pack. Right. You know? The Runaways, even though they're already back by the time Legacy begins. I was about to say. Um, Machine Man. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you've got other characters you could bring back who aren't dead. Well, like, what does that mean? Like, bring them back? Like, just, like characters that weren't being it's all, published? All it says is, spectacular character returns. Yeah, yeah. It just, I don't, I, yeah, Marvel's, Marvel seems pretty fucked to me. I don't know. I'm just, I'm uh, impressed. Do you want me to tell you, Marvel Legacy 1, do you want me to tell you, Marvel Legacy 1 will provide also from the same press release? Oh, please. The single most important first step for any fan to jumping into Marvel Legacy. Next bullet point, shocks, twists, clues, and Easter eggs. <laughs> bullet point number three, a blockbuster story that sets the stage for the coming years of Marvel storytelling. Yeah. The next bullet point. Now, we've been relatively vague and bombastic so far. Yes. So the fourth bullet point you think following the same thing. Are you yes. ready? Yeah. The introduction... Of the one million BC Avengers. <laughs> the one after that, the most talked about return in comics. Bear in mind, Legacy comes out two months before Doomsday Clock, which is going to fucking feature the Watchmen character. Oh, yeah. Like, it's going to feature Doctor apparently. Mm-hmm. So really, is Legacy really going to have the most talked about return in comics two months before fucking Doctor Manhattan comes back into comics? Really? Is it Marvel? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, bullet point number six. A brilliant tale by the legendary team of Jason Aaron and Isad Rubik. Yeah. Point number seven. The setup for 53 Marvel Universe series. Jesus. <laughs> number eight. Those character returns you've asked for, many of them get queued up here. <laughs> 
Ah, Jesus. Oh, God, no. Uh, do, you want me, do you want me to go through the list of comics and, and their storylines? So and you can tell me if any of them... Because you're, you're an old-school Marvel fan. You should be able to tell me... Like, if any of these sound exciting to you as an old school Marvel fan. This is, this is, this is your particular, I can't tell anymore what scab you're picking, but this is the third time you've been like, Jeff, Jeff, you're an old school Marvel fan? What do you think of Marvel Legacy? Are you coming back for the trade dress? No. And then two weeks later, it's like, Jeff, Jeff, I'm gonna read a bunch of cryptic statements. See if this means anything to, to you. Fantastic Four, counting to four. Are you, is that exciting to you, Jeff? Tell me. Like, it's, it's, it's like a horrible, it's a good thing we started talking about S&M at the beginning of this episode, because it's really playing out pretty nicely so far. It's like, my safe word is like, I don't even know what it is anymore. It's Martian Manhunter! Martian Manhunter! What is your safe word? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's utterly change the subject then. Jeff. Yes. No, yes, Grant. Did you enjoy Batman Elmer Fudd? Did you enjoy Batman Elmer Fudd? I hugely enjoyed it. I hugely enjoyed it. That was that was great. It was very interesting to follow up on my yeah. What the fuck, Tom King? Tom, you know. So I because I, I hadn't read it mm-hmm. when we spoke last, and uh, actually I only read it like two days ago. Uh, and when I was reading, I was like, "Now is this going to make Jeff go see see, or is he going to enjoy it?" Well, I enjoyed it, but I'm not entirely sure that it. I think it could well be filed under the might just reinforce my point. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I thought it was great. I think Lee Weeks is, is a phenomenal guy anyway. And so seeing him do. Lee Weeks are in that amazing. Yeah. Is gorgeous. Just fucking stunning. Like, I don't know, it's, what the, I mean, at some points it looked like it was, cause I recognize Weeks. He's a great, He's a good, strong artist, but the shit that he was doing in there—it was he—he he wasn't inked by Claus Jansen or anything, was he? But he almost looked at. Oh, I think it's all points. him. Yeah, it's all him, and it's. But his ability to take the Looney Tunes characters and anthropomorphize them or demorphize them was fucking amazingly good. Amazingly good. The Porky, Porky, the bartender in particular was, but all of them were just amazing. So yeah, the whole thing was, um, it was, it was fun. It was surprisingly, uh, it, it worked. It worked in its own weird thing. But, right. But also, and this is perhaps unsurprised, it's interesting to me that it is structured more as a FUD story than a Batman story, which on the one hand is a really smart feint. And of course, I I think that's probably par for the course with a lot of these one shots, but, but yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily disprove my point. It's just, it's also exceptionally, uh, it was exceptionally good. So yeah, that was great. No, Graham, I'm willing to go back to the Marvel points because part of me is like, did we even finish talking about erotica? I just ended up listing. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. I guess <laughs> there's not going to be a better, bigger point about erotica and fetishes other than <laughs> there's no money in comics. <laughs> the ultimate boner killer. So um, yeah, no, 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 no. Like, okay, I don't think we have like. I don't think we have to go back. You clearly like. You're not interested in legacy. I'm not. And so I yeah, won't go through, I I won't go through the 52 storylines. Yeah. Like, 
we're all good. Oh, we'll you know what? You know what we do have to talk about, Graham. Did you read Chip Zdarsky's uh, Spectacular Spider-Man? Yes. Yeah, oh, I did. All I right. did. I was praying to God um, that you didn't. First. And... Yeah. And what do you think? Because you forgot. No, because no, you, you read a lot. I read it last week, but I also promised I would read all those Alpha flights, and I only made it through ten yeah, I, I, issues before I, I, I was I, about to I, throw I, myself through that's, a window. That's good enough. That's good enough because uh, that's the other thing. If you made it like from issues one to ten, you've read the best of John Burns off of Oh, <laughs> fucking shit. I mean, it's after, after issue 12 in particular, it's right. such an amazingly steep downhill. Uh, it's like a slalom. It's really impressive. <laughs> I'm I'm actually fascinated uh, to see where it will go because I remember reading them and not liking them and revisiting them and it is genuinely as if John Byrne has committed fiercely to winning a bet where he can create the most boring comics of all time. The first ten issues of Alpha Flight. It's coming out at the same time as Fantastic Four. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it is because it, it, it feels, it feels so much more like a latter burn than mm-hmm. Fantastic Four feels like. Yeah. And yet they're contemporaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because there's a number of factors and, and I think also what I find fascinating about Alpha Flight is, is that, well, it's, it's, it's a lot of the things that I complain about in Fantastic Four. Some of my biggest, it, I was really amused where because I'd forgotten the first issue of Alpha Flight has, like, the thing that I have com- had complained about. In fact, there's it's almost a mirror of the same storyline. There's that issue of the Fantastic Four where a giant start, you know, springs up out of the Earth and then gets larger as he moves along. And they're like, he's so big, we don't even know how to stop him. And here it is only 20 issues after John Byrne made fun of the idea of giant characters. You know, it's just is mm-hmm. Alpha Flight number one is the same thing and at the same level, except he manages to be even more excruciatingly dull about it. And then he follows it up with, I shit you not, issue two through four is so, the storyline with the master is so colossally boring. I cannot believe that he dragged it out for three points for nothing to happen. And then he... Oh, but, but then that's... He returns to that issues 13 through 15. Ah. I mean, it. Uh, he has to, but just the way that wraps up is just like... I was like, what the fuck is this for an utter cheat? Like, the whole, like, it blows up. <laughs> and the master at the whole point is like, this is my plan. But I, I wish I could have recorded... I really should have put up, like, a Twitch channel of me reading the Alpha Flights. Because I think there was a point where the master comes back and explains... Because he, he expositions so relentlessly. When he shows up again and says, is like, oh, come, Marina, you think I don't know what this whole spaceship is for? Believe me, I know. And I whimpered aloud before he went into the page-long exposition of, like, Death Star Planets. I was like, oh, God. Oh, Oh, it is a horrible comic. And then, so, and then Burns like, oh, I'll be clever. I'm going to do a team comic where I'm not even going to bother with the team. It's all going to be solo stories. And then in issue 12 or whatever it is, I'm going to bring the band back together. I can't even tell you how dull that story is where it's like Puck versus the prescription medication smugglers. 
in in a hospital. I'm like, this this is supposed to be an exciting comic. Like, oh my god, Graham, it's all it's all bad. It was all bad. <laughs> the idea that it gets worse. Amazingly, you've not mentioned the North Star and Aurora team up two parter. Oh god. Well, I I've, I always hated the, I always hated both of those characters, and I'm fascinated to revisit it and be like. It's, you know, having read manga in theory and practice, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that, that, uh, he, he talks about on the, Akira talks about on the royal road to manga is this idea that, that the characters have to be on this upward arc. And I think it's fascinating that Burns starts Alpha Flight, which is a group of characters that I honestly liked in their appearances in the X-Men. And I'm like, oh boy, it's Burn drawing them. And, he has Marina turns into a monster and disembowels Puck. Aurora turns out to be like an asshole. North Star is using his powers to cheat. Like all of the characters are basically sort of they're either dull or they're turds. But I'm fascinated <laughs> by how relentlessly how in, how Burns like, oh no, I'm really going to make these characters unlikable. And again, I sort of get this weird feeling like he was looking to the original early days of books like The Avengers and being like, okay, this is kind of how you, this is this is how you do it. You make the characters because, as you and I know from our Avengers read through, those characters are unlikable pricks for a huge chunk of time. Like mm -hmm. from Lee to Thomas, like everyone is just awful. And I don't know if Byrne was going for that, but I really was by issue two. I'm like, really? The very second issue, you've got Marina almost kill Puck, turn into a monster and then f swim off to a base and and kind of everywhere you go from there. Like it, it's not just like they're flawed characters per se. Um, the other thing that's disturbing is, with the exception of of Heather McDonald, all it's weirdly mostly the female characters who are kind of deeply flawed or weird, cold, dehumanized creatures, you know, or the gay dude, you know. And as as much as I am, I'm like, oh, John Byrne is like bringing in a gay character. He's making him clearly gay, as you pointed out on the Tumblr. In no way is it at all subtle. Um, particularly now as we see it. I, I think I missed it at the time. But um, but again, the idea that he's kind of a cheat and a prig and a dick um, who whose only redeeming quality is, is that he loves his sister uh, is kind of this weird... I mean, not only is it a Quicksilver redo, but there's just, there's just so much about it that I'm just like, I'm fascinated to see what Byrne was doing apart from engaging in a, a bunch of creative self-hatred, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. cause it really seems like Alpha Flight is a 12 issue experiment. Well, I mean, it goes on for 20 some odd issues. The first 10 issues I read, Felt like an ongoing experiment in Burn once again being like, I'm going to beat Chris Claremont at his own game, or I am trying to self-sabotage the shit out of this book that I don't care about, but also am more or less forcing myself to identify with out of weird nationalistic fervor. You know? That no, that I would say that latter is what happens 
after issue 12. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, there is the last three or four issues. I can't remember of Burns Run. I want to say it's the last four issues. Mm-hmm. Basically, he reintroduces James Hudson mm-hmm. at 25, I think. Um, he, like, you can see the story he is telling, mm-hmm. but he tells it with so little care mm-hmm. that you can also see he does not give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, he does not give a shit about his, that comic. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely stunning mm-hmm. to see how little he cares about the comic. Because he's not even going through the motions. He literally, and actually he kind of does this at the very start of the book as well. He does a reveal that would make sense if you'd had any time to breathe. Mm-hmm. But just as Marina goes bad in issue two, after having been introduced in issue one. Yeah. Uh, he introduces like, oh look, James Hudson is back from the dead, and the very next issue, he's like, or it's a robot, right? Who's betrayed the team? Mm-hmm. And you're like, you like, you couldn't even play that out for another issue. Yeah, <laughs> like you couldn't be bothered tending. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing how much he just it's in the last half of his run does not give a shit, and also. I know Marvel Unlimited is not going to do this. I really want them to add the Bill Mantle issues to this book now. Mm, mm. Yeah, that would be interesting. Because Mantle has like twice the length of of, uh, of Burned Run. Mm-hmm. And Mantle, of course, has the amazingly offensive no North Star isn't gay, He uh, nor does he have AIDS. He has fairy disease because <laughs> he's a fairy, you guy. And he has to go back to fairyland. You did, were you reading the book at that point or not? No, no, I pretty much, so. So, so Mantlo basically gives, or rather starts really heavy-handedly hinting that Norse has AIDS. Mm-hmm. Or at least, that's not true, that he's HIV positive. Right. Like really amazingly heavy-handedly hinting this. You know, Northstar all of a sudden will be coughing and talking about how he's, like, how he's just sick and how he just can't get better anymore. Yeah. And then this all leads into the 50th issue where it's like, Narsar, what's going on with you? And Loki shows up and he's like, he's a fairy. <laughs> That's what's going on with him. And he's sick because he's on Earth. He's a fairy who has to go back to fairyland. And that is honest to God the resolution of that plot. And all I can think is that the editorial came in and were like, no, you can't tell the story. Yeah, I think that it does. Everything about it really does. It does make you think that, doesn't it? I, I'm also fascinated the extent to which, um, well, I mean, so this is the thing. I, and spoilers for this fucking 30 year old comic, but I, what I think is interesting is, is that it's, when you get to issue 12, I think it's issue 12. Is it 12 where, uh, Guardian dies, where Hudson dies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mac, Mac dies in issue 12. And there's a way in which a burn you realize knowing that and rereading these issues is kind of a burn. burn, This is the part where Burns building for all along. I would say, I mean, I I would say that his run is more or less conceived with this idea of like, okay, I'm going to introduce Mac. I'm going to make him see. I'm going to kill him off. I'm going to make Heather basically. Like, I'm going to somehow, and this is the problem with Burn, I'm going to simultaneously denounce all the tropes and embrace them at the same time. So 
Max the hero, you're supposed to really be, he's the only swell guy, and then he dies, and then Heather, you expect her to take on the, the, the legacy, but she spends most of her time refuting it, but then she accepts it. So I kind of see the idea of like, you're gonna bring back Hudson and be like, oh, okay, he's, he's like, kinda like, oh, he's back, is this yet another fake out? As we know from the FF 249 through 250, for whatever reason, it, he, Burn, I think Burn finds the imposter hero trope just utterly unpalatable. Like, he does it, but, but like he more or less sabotages it as he does it. You know, it's, there's nothing at all. Like, you're just like, who is this for, really? Because it's not really convincing. Whereas I, I think Burn loves the, I think Burn loves that trope. It's just that he thinks he's putting like an amazing spin on it every Maybe single time. It. Yeah, and his amazing spin is always just killing it. Yeah, it, it, but like really impressively killing it. Well, I, I think he loves it. I think he really does. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's really weird because I, it, you're right. He turns, he returns to it, but he has, he just spikes that ball so quickly. He's just like, oh, you know, no, 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 no. Like, like actually, now that you mention it, what the, the only story that I remember as halfway liking is his sort of half-hearted pastiche of literally, which is funny on a number of levels of the thing where Walter Lankowski and his research team up in the middle of nowhere end up recovering what appears to be Ben Grimm, the thing. And then, uh, more or less people end up dying. It's the super scroll, you guys. Which is, and one of the things that fucking kills me is I remember reading those stories. It's an atmospheric buildup, but it's fun. And the next issue, you're like, oh great, it's going to be Sasquatch versus the super scroll and it's going to be awesome. And it, and again, it's Burns like, oh, I've got, I'm going to be a big boring piece of shit, you guys. Super scroll's got super leukemia. Oh, and Sasquatch, Sasquatch is going to rampage just like the Hulk, but he's different. I mean, that's the, it's, it's gross the extent to which Alpha Flight is also a bunch of sort of burn fanfic tropes. Like, here's, you know, here's Sasquatch. He's just like the Hulk, except he's not a loser and he gets laid, which come to think of it is pretty much how he, what he does with Superman when he takes over Superman, literally, you know, but it's, you know, it's like, here's Scarlet Witch and, um, Quicksilver, except Quicksilver really is gay, like we always thought, and Scarlet Witch finally puts out, which is great, except she's got a split identity, so she can also still be a bitch. Don't worry, guys, I got our bases covered. And then we got Captain America, but it's okay, cause he's married to Jailbait, and he's gonna die in the first 12 issues. You know, it just goes on and on, and, uh, here's my version of, of Doctor Strange, who, you know, I'm even gonna steal his origin, more or less, except I'm gonna make it very Native American. Oh god, it, Graham, it was a terrible, it was terrible. It really was. Thank you for making me read 10 issues of terribleness. I gotta say, that was, I, 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 no, I've got to say, I definitely came out of that deal better. Yeah. So did you sort of enjoy uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man by Chip Zdarsky slash Adam Kubert slash probably other people I'm totally forgetting to mention? Uh, Goran Parloff, who did the oh, backup. Yeah, I, I, did, backup. I did enjoy it. But I've got to tell you, that backup I did not like at all. I liked the art and that was it. I thought that, like, it actually irritated me, that backup. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. The backup is – the story part is horrible, and I totally know what you mean. That part with him, like, 
fighting Black Widow was terrible, but oh my god. It's not even, it's not even that. It's the, it's the very last page where it's like, we're setting this up for future, you guys. I was just like, this, fuck this. Like, take this story out of the comic. It adds nothing apart from adding to the fucking price of it. Uh, I guess that's true. But I'm like, I don't know. Goran Parlov like, is such a good Spider-Man. Absolutely irritated me. Yeah. I was like, fuck this shit. Um, I like Zdarsky Spider-Man a bunch. Mm-hmm. I like the way he writes them. Um, I like the comedy aspect of the book a bunch. Yeah. Uh, I, I found the, my favorite joke was the Spider-Man never forgets a day or rather, yeah, yeah. Spider-Man never forgets a day cuts to him standing Johnny Sarmov. Yeah. Which is such a dumb joke. Yeah. But like, was they completely committed to, which I really liked. Right. But despite all of that, I was also like, I, I, it's it's a slick book, but it's not a book I feel any compulsion to return to. Well, I got to admit, part of me, when I put it down, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, Adam Kubert's art, not really my thing. But you know what? I picked I, I, it. Kubert is not, Kubert is not right for Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. I think so overall and not right for this particular take, maybe. There's some bad choices on there. But I have to say that, frankly, when I went back and reread this, because I was like, oh, right, we're going to, we're going to, um, talk about this if Graham's read it and if not I'm going to excoriate him because I had to read 10 issues of Alpha Flight but uh, I uh, I was like you know what nothing really happens in this comic like I mean there's events well, there's and a there's a lot of setup yeah there's, there's a, a lot, lot of setup. setup there's there's a lot of it's sort of like oh I enjoy reading this for the dialogue but in the sense of when I revisited it, I really was like, yeah, there's, there, it's a significant lack of, of happening. And I think part of it was when I read it last week, I'd also had started and had yet to return to, I read like the first, what, four or five issues of clone conspiracy. Uh, mm-hmm. And that by contrast is such a, you know, slot is like things are happening, 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 happening. He gets in his, his, talking but it's generally more for like pushing the plot forward with maybe a few because lots somewhat clever like there's there's kind of gestures towards wit whereas Zdarsky's thing is very much just that sort of opening spread of Spider-Man and and the Human Torch eating lunch together on a roof and talking I'm like yeah this is more what I want this is closer to it, but it's well, it's it's Spider Man as a comedy book. It's spi- well, right? It's Spider Man as a comedy book, and so the comedy's there. But my problem is, is then kind of as the Parlov point thing points out, like the, there's no there's the 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 action scenes are terrible. Are just they're not. It's 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 not organic yet. It'll be interesting to see if it can get to be organic but it's kind of it's you know i keep going back to those marvel gifts like um it, the one that i i i published published that i i downloaded and i posted as the image uh over at wait what podcast for last week's episode which is the rich buckler classic here i am ripping off kirby i'm being inked by senate and it's, you know, the FF at, at the city of Adelon. This one issue's got it all. And then you cut to Marvel 2 and 1. And I'm like, why the fuck are they drawing Ben Grimm so ugly? Like, seriously, I'm just like, 
Marvel is in such a place where I sort of halfway get to like, okay, we can't draw like Ron, you know, we can't draw like Joe Sinnott and Ron Wilson or Ron Friends who's drawing everything. And I think that, I think that's fine. It's like, okay, you've moved beyond Kirby. I guess that's great. Whatever. But the fact is, um, whatever that character design of the thing does not work to me. He basically looks like Cheeto man at best, you know, it's an mm-hmm. ugly design. And as much as I enjoyed spectacular Spider-Man on the first through and read through, and I wanted you to reread it and I enjoyed the comedy. I went back, I still enjoyed it, but I still had this weird, like, um, it's like that Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk gets pulled into two individuals, you know? It's like, you've got Dan Slott's Spider-Man, which seems to have a lot of, uh, is one half of Spider-Man, and then you've got Zdarsky. It's got, it's got the action and the daring do. Yeah, exactly. The daring do and sort of the high stakes. And then you've got Zdarsky, and it's got like the regular guy with some surprisingly good comedy licks, you know? But it, I'm like, Jesus, I kind of remember when that used to be in just one comic, you know? And it's kind of amazing. I'm sort of like Marvel Comics, proving that Marvel Comics are not as easy to put out as you might think, you know? Like, that should be their tagline for Marvel Legacy. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's, that's the thing for Marvel Legacy, right? Like, we'll be the Marvel Comics you remember again. Yeah, but I'm fascinated. Just the idea that they're I, doing I, that I, with like trade dresses I, I, I don't and things. Think no, no. I mean, yeah, just, I, I don't think. Yeah, like I, I think, I think both the Spider-Man books. I think you're right that they they both. offer two very different Spider-Mans. Mm-hmm. But, but neither Spider-Man I remember. Right. You know, neither is "quote unquote" my Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting to me, and I, I think I've said this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um. For me, like, the Marvel characterizations were, like, amazingly consistent for 30-odd years. Yes, they were. And then were not. Well, and in, in part because... And it's, it's basically, like, we can't get back to those characterizations now, even. Well, because I think I think that, you know, one of the things that was an eye-opener for me about reading FF and, and reading uh, Avengers is kind of that idea of, like, Stan Lee had, like five character voices and they he he mixed them but it's like you had the hothead you had the genius you had the supervillain you had the wisecracker wisecracking salt of the earth you know and then okay how many times do you mix those up you know and and two flavors uh three flavors of women you know heartsick imperious and supportive milk soppy you know those are the that's the that's like the stanley vaudeville i was gonna say the three three volu- three flavors of woman is is putting it politely. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, I mean, just you know, sometimes he he's more than willing to make each woman be do all three of those voices. But I mean, you know, so uh, it just it has that thing of like going back and rereading some of that stuff. I'm like, once you can get past the fact that all the characters sort of talk in the same voice, and then everyone who came after Lee more or less wrote in that. Patois, it was like, uh, the thing that I think is interesting is, is that, again, at not just the, like, you know, the, the classic quote of not change, but the illusion of change. Like that illusion is 
gone. And what I think is fascinating is the extent to which Marvel is doing a come back, you guys, it's going to be just like it used to be, is is in its way sort of antithetically Marvel, antithetical to what some people think, uh, what I used to think of as Marvel, in a way that it's not necessarily antithetical to the way that I used to think of the DC characters. The DC characters could actually kind of do the come back, you guys, it's the, it's what you remember, because there is a little bit of, because, because the DC characters are so instantly palatable, the way that they're presented, like, I can't, I, with the exception of Spider-Man, who is, I think, really is, like, people, like, children in, in the womb respond to Spider-Man, I would say that a lot of Marvel's stuff is, when you're a little bit older, but when you're young, man, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, you know, depending on what variations or stripes that you grew up with, usually the, the there's a very friendly, accessible version of them that you can have. Whereas even something like the Hulk, which kids respond to, the, it's a loaded response. You know what I mean? And so, so I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. Sometimes I think that DC does have the upper edge in a come back you guys will be just like you remember us because we have some like really early memories of those characters as comforting and want to be comforted by their return whereas i feel like marvel stuff was the we're different you guys you know and changing it to come on back we're just the way that you remembered us which is to say different is a confusing message you know it's inherent to it's it's a really challenging uh, message to make land, you know, and I, and I don't really know the extent to which they're going to carry that off. But I do think that the illusion of change, like when I'm reading this Spider-Man comic, I'm like, I do have a little bit of the, I think it's funny that they had to bifurcate it to get a completely ridiculous, you know, unnecessary action scene drawn beautifully by Goran Parlov and then a bunch of comedy shtick drawn not especially well by Adam Cooper or okay, I guess. But, but at the core of it, it was like they, I was willing to accept it because I'm aware in a way Spider-Man's never going to come back because at some point, you know, and every, that's where everyone starts gesturing towards the big sign saying one more day, like they they deliberately rolled that character back. They deliberately chose to break the continuity. And I sort of see why they did. And they were able to back it up with an initial burst of strong, readable comics from Slot. But I think they're at the stage now where everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay, so we can kind of go home. You know, like the encore is over. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing left after the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth encore the Marvel Legacy Encore set is does not seem to have much appeal to it because what are you going to do? You've played all the hits. Well, I'm uh, I'm weirdly I feel what you're saying is weirdly um, contradictory because yeah. if well if DC can do this, DC breaks its continuity like every fucking five years. Well, yes. One of the things that the DC's been sort of, for the most part, I would say, what's great is some people ignore it, is I would say that there was a good long break between New 52 and the last time they rebooted their continuity, right? I could be wrong on that. Like, does it go back to zero uh, hour, or 
is there a continuity it's, boot it's, in there? Honestly, no, I, uh, I would say, I mean, when it goes to like soft reboots of DC continuity, right. before, uh, before New 52, it was Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. Before Final Crisis, it was Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. And those two books are separated by three years. Yes. Which uh, is, yeah. Mm-hmm. From Final Crisis to, to New 52 is two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, like, you know, that's no time. Before Infinite Crisis, it was zero hours. So that's 12 years. Yeah. And before that, from zero crisis to, I have zero Reserve hour to. The crisis was 10 years. Yeah. So I think, I think it would be safe to say that, that, that DC is doing the reboots more or less in 12, 10 to 12 years kind of gaps, unless you're looking at really, and some of them are very, like Final Crisis is a pretty soft reboot. Oh, it's, it's, it's the softest of soft reboots. I mean, it really is. It's, it's a soft reboot insofar as like at the end they're like, and we restarted time and like, like really fucking minor things change. Yeah, exactly. That's Uh, very minor. But like, like, um, Infinite Crisis, you know, rewrote the origin of Superman again, Mm -hmm. rewrote the origin of Batman again, Mm -hmm. uh, changed the origin of Wonder Woman again. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it did make significant changes. Right. So. So, which is a good point. Um, but I, I think that generally DC is able to reboot itself, uh, in a way, in a part because after, after the first one and then the second one, people are like, okay, I don't know how to describe it. Like it's more or less, it's not a full generation, but it feels like, uh, at least by comic book terms, a generation goes by and they reboot it. And, and so they're able, they're, they are able to sort of blur the lines a little bit and be like, okay, this is the characters that you quote unquote know. And that, which is why the new 52 really sort of threw things off is they literally were like, well, that's just it. The, the difference between, you know, uh, zero hour infinite crisis and right. new 52 yeah. is the new 52 was literally, we were starting over again. Yeah. And both zero hour and, uh, infinite crisis where, we're keeping going. It's that the history has changed. Right. Right. Like we're literally following on from last month. It's that we reserve the right to say, but the origins are different. Yeah. 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 And I mean, there's, there, they, they got a certain amount of distance or gas out of it, depending on, on how well, far they were willing to go with it. But, you know, I feel there really is a little bit of the, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that I expected I expect change from Superman in the way that I expect change from Spider-Man. And honestly, I don't really expect change from Spider-Man anymore. But when I was a kid, I did. I was like, oh, these are characters that are going to change and grow. And I was kind of like, at that stage, considering I was reading uh, DC Comics in the 70s, it was kind of not so much, you know. It was kind of sure. like, you know. But, but when you say, you know, these are characters that are going to change and grow, mm-hmm. that stopped in like – the mid eighties, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much. I, so, I, I, I remember I remember yeah. yeah, I remember when I was like I've got to be like twelve or thirteen, but I was around for like Captain America quits for the second time in the Grunewald era when when he becomes the captain. Yeah. Uh which was at the same time as End of Simonson's Thor, so all of a sudden like he's wearing the armor, he's got the beard, which is the same time as the Grey Hulk, which is the same time as 
I want to say there's another big storyline at the same time. And I remember being like, holy shit, like Marvel really is changing. This is right. so exciting. Mm-hmm. But within like a year, all of those had defaulted to, to the status quo. And I remember at that point being like, oh, these characters don't change. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All, all you can sort of count on is uh, is a cycle. And they did a good job of playing out that cycle. And I think I think that's – I sort of feel like, yes, that's fine. But I also feel like, okay, and that's probably not a bad point to consider rebooting your universe, you know? And then starting to tell it again and telling it in a way where you work in the updates. Like there, there's a point that where – let's see if I can find it. One of the things that I thought was interesting in, in manga and theory and practice is Araki talks about characters and uh, basically that it, essentially as you, if you if your stories are character, the stronger they're tied to to, to your characters, the more your stories become dated because your characters are essentially tied to the specific time in which they are created mm. and resonated, resonate with. Um, let's see if I can find the quote because it's actually pretty. I, I, I think – did you not actually say something similar to that last week? Like, uh, I feel like you, you cited that last week. Oh, I apologize if so because if nothing else, I drew down a couple of really good um, – sp- I, I think I remember saying what happened is he goes on to say that, that settings more important – like readers find setting more important yeah, maybe, characters. Maybe that, yeah, yeah maybe, so. maybe that's what you said last week. Yeah, so I feel I feel like there's something in there. Anyway, I'll see if I can return to it. But there are times, in, and so what he says is essentially the stronger the character that you have, or the character based manga, the more essentially your uh, the way that things. I think he, he's talking about how um, manga characters that go on and become anime characters, and how the anime changes and updates the characters because the settings are always changing and being made more modern, essentially. And Mm -hmm. I think I'm paraphrasing badly or distorting the point, but I do feel that there is something to that. There is a little bit of when they reboot Batman, I'm generally like, oh, this is an interesting choice, or this is this is something that I can appreciate that they've done with Batman that makes sense. That sort of reflects the tenor of our times more. If you, if you do it wrong, as I feel like kind of went wrong with new 52 Superman, you're like, what the fuck is this character? You know, but, but if you, if you sort of do it right, if you've got something that's malleable enough and the people working on it, have a, have a clear enough conception of it. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think with the Marvel characters, I do have that, feeling of like Jesus for me legacy is like everything that they're promising is is inherently contradictory no wonder why it's like a huge fucking mess you know like they just can't I don't see how they could fulfill the promises that they're making and I'm fascinated the extent to which Marvel's cynical enough that they're kind of shocked that they're expecting anyone to follow through on those promises like I don't think they're thinking they're going to follow through on them you know, like, honestly, the Avengers of 10,000 BC is kind of a, it's, it's, is a half clever idea. It's like, oh, you take the legacy circle characters right off, you know, right back to the beginning of, of the, of the circle, the very first set of these characters. And then you set up a primal thing for them. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that sounds about right from the guy who wrote the murder mystery about the watcher being killed, you know, and at his eye being ripped out. Like, 
Yeah. You know, it's, it sounds like a very smart guy who knows which parts of Morrison to rip off, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it's anywhere other than, um, than a trifle, I guess, for whatever reason. So, cause I just don't, I don't, I, I think we've gone through this when I was bitching about like Jonathan Hickman's shield. I don't think that there's, it's really, I never think that the Marvel universe is very fun to think of as like, Oh yeah. And back in the 1500s when, you know, the 1500s version of black Panther was like fighting the 1500s version of ghost Rider, And they were both teaming up to fight the 1500 version of, of iron fist. I'm like, I kind of like, I kind of like the Marvel universe that like got weird when four people went into space and came back with superpowers. That makes a lot right? of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, in, in a way, just the fact that the, one of their bullet points makes me be like, mm, yeah, they don't really kind of get what motivates the old nerds. It's not, it's not gifts and corner boxes, you know, God help me. You've got to get some lunatic who is willing to somehow suck up all the stuff that John Byrne is saying and catalyze it in a way that is somehow faithful to the concepts, to the spirit, but not to the actual literal execution of, of it. You know what I'm saying? So, so we'll see. I don't know, Graham. What you're saying is you want John Byrne to become the editor-in-chief of Marvel. Oh, my and God. I, I completely I understand. Yeah, exactly. After uh, reading those first 10 issues of Alpha yeah, don't, Flight. Don't, yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what could go wrong? Just what I... Could, it could be worse. I could have said, Jeff, why don't you read Mar uh, X-Men The Hidden Years? Oh, Jesus. You know what? I got to tell you, Graham. I, I'm sure those were excruciating too. But you know, in Alpha Flight, where they've got that story where like Submariner and Sue Storm pop up on the very last page of the issue, and then the next yeah. issue is how they fucking got there. And you're like, John Byrne, this has no narrative tension to it at all. At all, we already know they end up there. And he's like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. How am I going to be able to swim in these poisoned waters, Susan? Well, maybe if I put my force field up around your name or blah, blah, blah. How are you going to handle the air preferential difference there, Susan? Not to worry. It's in Kelvin and Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Blah, blah, blah. It's like John Byrne, superhero science teacher. Who you hate and who hates you. Dear Patreon supporters, <laughs> I say right now, I think we can get to a new level where Jeff has to do recaps of Alpha Flight. <laughs> I, I think we can make it happen. Oh my god, no. And you know you want it to happen as well. We'll just call it blah blah blah. <laughs> and... We'll make Jeff, but what we'll do is Jeff will have to do like an hour per page of Alpha Flight. Oh my so we god. Going for a long time. Seriously. Cause it's true. It has its sort of peaks and waves. It would have to be a high patron level because I think we would need to have an editor who would be able to. I, really... I think, I think you'd have to have therapy. Never well, there's the therapy. I think I, you need an editor because you have to know when to leave in the parts where I'm weeping aloud and when to cut the parts that I'm weeping aloud. Like, when does that drag the story? When does it bring the story forward? Kind of like John fucking Byrne 
when in fucking Alpha Flight number four, the master explains the whole purpose of that fucking spaceship, and you're just like, fucking kill me. Oh, kill me. Are you saying that Denny O'Neill was not the ideal editor? Oh, man. Denny O'Neill was clearly working on his drinking problem at that point. You can just tell. He's just like, you just go. I've got some talent. I've nurtured. I brought Frank Miller up. I Soon I will be on the Batman books. For right now, I'm just going to have the sweet gift of oblivion that alcohol can bring me. Because, you know, it's fucking John Burton. What are you going to tell him? Because he's cl- it's clear he's like... I know how to tell a story. I'm like, yeah, but this is not it, John Byrne. He's like, silence. Now for my flashback of before they were Alpha Flight. Oh, my God. Those stories are so laden in misery. Oh, oh, God. Oh, like, and it's one of those deals where it's like the only things I can appreciate is like in the origin of Guardian, his first cyber helmet looks like Jack Kirby's Guardian. I'm like, I know I saw that. I saw that, John Byrne. That was actually clever. That's one half of one panel of an eight-page story that is dreary. I also love that Marina Marina grows up in a town that's so inbred they all accept her. Did you catch that part? That was great. Yeah. I somehow <laughs> missed that the first time. I'm like, way but to go, John Byrne. I, I, I love that you're like, but that's great. No, it's not. No, no. it's horrific. It's kind of weird and creepy where he was like, oh, they all – they all." I'm just – I was like, yeah, go Canada. Like, hmm, this is this a town where it was so inbred. They were used to, he says something like freaks and sports, which I was like, freaks and sports? I don't know. I'll try and I'll, I definitely took a screenshot of the page because again, the unrelenting slog through misery. I had this moment of like, oh, I love this in that it makes me feel something other than a desire for death. So, yeah, you're welcome, page, uh, listeners. Speaking of which, Graham, um, it's, it's been a while. It's, it's probably time we wrap this sucker up, huh? Like, I feel like that's, we... That's probably true. <laughs> I don't think people need to hear us complain more about Alpha Flight, but everyone, seriously, let's just, you know, let's <laughs> check Jeff out and you and me talk about getting Jeff to do Alpha Flight. That'd be great. Oh what Jeff God. wants me to see, yes, I should say, is tell you, that we're all over the fucking internet. We are weightwatchpodcasts.com where you get show notes for this episode, for the Baxter Buildings, and for earlier episodes of uh, Wait What. We're also weightwatchpods.tumblr.com where you will find images of what I am reading and sometimes Jeff is reading. Just random shit, including recently the uh, Robo Hunter from 2008 stuff that I was reading this week, which is fucking great, Jeff. We are also... Uh, on Twitter, at Wait What Podcast. Jeff's on Twitter solo, at Lazy Bastard, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter solo, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast. We have to thank you, beautiful, wonderful people, for keeping us on the air, even though it's the internet. But go with it. Jeff, take it away. Oh, yes, I will. Everyone, Thank you. Uh, and I mean all of our listeners, but I also mean the, uh, the fine supporters at, uh, Patreon. People who, uh, feel that, um, they, that it is worth, it is worth it to them to throw a little bit of money to us, um, for what we do for you. I think there's probably some sort of holistic circle thing that I could map out if I was at all talented. But, 
But I, as we all know, I'm not. So let me just thank all those people, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're especially grateful for their ongoing and continuing support of this podcast. We really, really are. And I think that's about all I got. Normally, normally I'm a little more digressive, but this time I'm just going to be like, well, Graham? He didn't say anything about like Empress not destroying the world. I know, which makes I me a little nervous. Yeah, like, that does. that actually happened. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's been a weird week. I'll give everyone that. But I didn't think that reality had ended. Maybe it has. You guys, maybe we'll be back in two weeks or maybe we won't. Who can even tell anymore? It's true. Jeff, is it a is it a uh Pax building in two weeks? I I gotta admit I've been a little off on our schedule. I'm you like, know what? Oh, I've, I've got to look it up because I was just like, wait, in three weeks is San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, so, so maybe we're, we're just our... recording right through. That seems crazy. So let me see here. What are we even doing? Yeah, we're recording the Baxter Building. Happening it, next we're week. Yes, next week Baxter Building. Then the fifteenth. Oh wait, what? Then the twenty second. A uh, skip week. We take a week off. Yeah, And then we take off the week after that. Yes, we do, because we jammed in all three weeks into that. And then later, August, we're back. But then we're also gone, because Jeff's having surgery. So, excitement. Um, but we're but back. while Jeff's having surgery, we're going to record you uh, as you come out of anesthesia. And I'm going to ask you lots of weird questions. <laughs> and you're, you're just not even going to know what you're saying. So it'll be great. <laughs> it'll be great. They're like... Jeff, can you, can you tell us what day it is? I'm like, uh, it's uh, Saturday? Uh, yes, that's right. And your friend Graham here has some questions. It's like, Jeff, I'm going to read a list of Marvel Legacy descriptions. <laughs> tell me which ones actually seem exciting to you. Oh, my God. People, we're going to be back next week with the Baxter Building. Until then, bye! <laughs> I had to end it right there.